You know, I heard that if you lock a bunch of zombies in a room for an infinite period of time with nothing but typewriters, they will eventually produce the complete text of the January 25th, 2014 episode of Red Pages Podcast. I'm Justin. I'm Gord. And I'm Paul. And this week we have a special guest on our podcast, as we are wont to do. Uh, and that guest is... I'm Jonathan. I'm a game designer, and we're going to be talking about some of the stuff I've done later on, I believe. Um, well, if you want to. Uh, we'll talk about basically your entire career, if you want to. Um, it's really up to you and uh, sort of where our discussion takes us, because we are very, very bad at staying on a specific topic. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we fall down rat holes very often. Sounds great. But our first segment, as it always is, is the haps, the sweet haps. So we haven't had a show in like three weeks, which means that everybody should have done at least one interesting thing in the past three weeks. So uh, does anybody want to start with something especially interesting? Uh, otherwise, uh, I will. No? Okay. I don't uh, have anything particularly you all, you all interesting, to, to be honest. Wait, wait, I got one. I got one. Okay. You, just, you spent like a week in Florida. Why do I have <laughs> yeah. interesting things that happen to you, but you don't? <laughs> Florida's not very interesting. I don't know. You went to Disney, didn't you? Uh, technically, but I wouldn't call that in, like at any point fun. Star Tours wasn't fun? Uh, I don't know. It, it's not, it, if it were my first time at Star Tours, it would be way more entertaining, but it, I've been to Star okay. Tours several times now. Have you have you gone through every possible permutation yet? Uh, that would take all, way too long, given that I've got like no soul. Seventy right? different rides of Star Tours. Yeah, no, I I've gone through four different permutations so far, and uh, I've seen I haven't even seen all of the uh, different possible uh, segments. Cool. Have you seen any doubles yet? I've seen plenty of doubles now. Almost, every, I haven't. I've only seen one of the first segments so far. Weird. There are like three or four of them, aren't there? Yeah, there are. So it's really upsetting that I keep getting the same one. Huh. Um, I know that you also went to New York because I was there. Right. Oh, I figured you'd talk about that one anyway. So no, no, I've got something more exciting than our trip to New York. Sorry. <laughs> the fact that you uh, did you finally finish any of your puzzle things? Uh, wait, which puzzle things? Uh, for for your 3DS. Oh, no. That, that is not exciting at all. <laughs> uh, no, my exciting thing is a conference that I went to last uh, yesterday. Yesterday? Yesterday was Friday, right? Yes. Um, but I'll talk about that uh, after you tell us about New York. Okay, well, we just uh, went to a sweet Japanese restaurant for one of our f- mutual friend's birthdays. Um, there were lots of nerds there, and we were surprisingly the least nerdy people, um, yep. given that we uh, do a podcast on video games, <laughs> somehow least nerdy. Yeah, everybody else there was uh, a, like a hardcore professional cosplayer, um, yeah. which, which made, they referred to us as the normal people. 
which is disconcerting. <laughs> uh, Gord or John, do you have any? Did you do anything exciting over the past three weeks? At all? Uh, well, well, I'm in Japan. That's pretty exciting. Okay, but you're always in Japan. <laughs> that's not true. He used to be in Canada. It's true. Back mm. when he was reasonable. <laughs> When I had That's a reasonable time zone. Person. Yeah. Um, you're there for another year, right? Uh, or did you sign on for a seventh year? A second year, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess I'll talk about my conference because you guys are boring. Um, so I went to a <laughs> conference. Yeah, yeah, I went to a conference yesterday, um, which was about... Uh, I'll get you the official title, but it was basically about China and the rise of new technologies and uh, different uses of technology and social networking in China at this time, and marketing, and how to take advantage of those. Uh, it was called New Media, the Internet, and a Changing China. And I went to a panel yesterday about called uh, Business and New Media in China, where there were presentations by the, uh, the CEO of Nielsen Greater China, um, a professor from a university over in China that I have never heard of, and the vice president of Lenovo. Ooh. Yeah, they were, and they were all really interesting. They talked about how there are these policies in China that prevent the large multinationals like Google or Facebook, YouTube, which is, I guess, Google, from sort of entering the markets. And they have this thing called uh, C2C, which is Copy to China. So there are all these versions of those websites which are only for uh, China, and um, they're actually, in some cases, basically just as large because China has so many people. Mm. And so they talked about the, this because this was uh, this particular panel was specifically about marketing. They talked about how today we can use those networks and sort of work within them to reach out into Chinese markets and uh, getting sort of in touch with the Chinese consumer. And they did, talked about sort of what defines the Chinese consumer and a lot of really uh, less interesting sort of marketing sales stuff that most of it went over my head because I have no background in marketing. Uh, and for some reason I was there. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was really interesting to hear like the really basic stuff that they were talking about, about how they designed their different campaigns, um, how in China, the statistic that the guy from Nielsen gave, was he said that 95% of consumer uh, social, media, like, social media posts about products are negative as opposed to America, where I think he said 85 to 90% of posts on social media about products are positive. Hmm. Why yeah. is that? That was actually a question that somebody asked. Um, <laughs> there were a couple answers that they gave. One was that um, the quality of products in China is much lower. Hmm. Uh, so you are just going to get people who are complaining more. Um, what was that other reason? That the Chinese consumer voice is much more collectivist than in America. So it's a lot easier to get a lot of people rallying around a specific impression of a product and repeating that over and over again. They talked about this guy who 
um, he he bought this refrigerator and it broke and he made a post on I guess the Chinese equivalent of Facebook or whatever it was that the door didn't close properly and that he was never going to buy a product about from them again and he was able to just build that up to the point where other people will, were sending him their refrigerators so that he could <laughs> smash them in front of the corporate head. <laughs> really? Dang. Yeah. Yeah, and then they, the company responded really badly by refusing to apologize for their bad products, and they basically denied that there were any issues, and it was a huge PR fiasco Wow! for them. Yeah. And it was a bunch of stories like that. So um, That's going to be all- a really big learning curve for a Chinese company, isn't it? Realizing that they're going to put stuff out and people are going to really complain and demand better. I bet that's that's a new thing they're having to deal with. Yeah, it's... Um, so, I guess Nielsen, because they're all about statistics and consumer demographics, they, their, their presentation was almost entirely just, here are numbers about the Chinese consumers and how... what they look for in products and what the changes in income are. And, I mean, it's it's really fascinating how rapidly the middle class in China is expanding uh, and how how rapidly the average income is rising. Um, things like when, like, one in ten people in China plan on purchasing a brand new car in the next year, which when you consider that China has a billion people, <laughs> is a huge number of cars. Things, um, and... The fact that unlike in almost any other sort of realm, the Chinese government is really hands-off because they want to foster free market competition. So that's uh, a lot, not yeah. something that I've ever heard of the uh, heard said of the uh, Chinese government that they're very hands-off. Yeah, that they were really <laughs> uh, they were really explicit about like this is the one place where the government basically says you know do whatever you want because they want to foster growth in their economy. Huh. And, I mean, given that they are one of the fastest growing economies in the world, it seems to be working. But So, i, I got a question. Did they say anything about credit cards? Um, hmm. I don't... I'll tell you why I'm asking, right? It's because, obviously, in video games, we do almost all of our transactions through credit cards now, because it's all digital, it's all or through the App Store, or through Steam, or through whatever your right. particular flavor of digital purchasing is, uh, Google Play, whatever. And piracy from the Chinese market is absolutely colossal. I mean, I've seen it myself. When we launched a game a couple of years ago, we were watching all these immediate hits from the Chinese market of download of purchasing our most expensive IAP. And we thought, actually, none of these are real. They were all... Uh, XML hacks to hack to sort of illegally download our IAP. Hmm. But what we discovered was that the, there's a massive, massive market of everybody, and they all really, really want to consume stuff, but they don't have credit cards. Credit card ownership is incredibly low in China, particularly Western accepted credit cards. And that's sort of related to how piracy is so big because they've got no other way of getting hold of this stuff. So I'm just wondering if they said anything about credit card ownership in uh, in that conference you went to. 
you know, um, I bet they probably did at a panel that I was not at. I did not go to. This was a two-day affair, and I was only there yesterday. Um, so I missed the entire first day. But I didn't hear anything about it in the stuff that I went to. But I would be very surprised if it didn't come up, if not in a panel directly, then in during one of the lunch discussions. Because from, from what I heard, a lot of the presentations in the latter half of the day changed somewhat to be tailored more to what people were interested in talking about based on what they had just talked about while having lunch. Hmm. So, Sounds good. I, I don't, yeah, I don't think that... I didn't hear anything, but I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, um, one really interesting thing that I heard was there was this uh, cell phone company. I wish I had the papers that I brought home with me. They're probably around here somewhere. Um, but there's this cell phone company in, uh, in China uh, where... They've, because they're in China, they can produce all of their hardware really cheaply, and their hardware is, they put up the specs for it versus the Samsung Galaxy, what is it, S3 now or whatever they call it, and the iPhone 5, and they were just as good, if not better, in every single major category. And the way that they are selling this phone, they sell it for half the price of what an iPhone costs. And every Friday, they put out a new software update for the phone. And the way that they can do this is because their patches and hotfixes are all drawn from the community. So hmm. by making basically everybody a developer, people can develop <laughs> better software for the phone and then submit it. And the company goes through all of it and puts out a new firmware update for the phone every Friday at 5 o'clock. That's actually awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. You know, it reminds me of something. (laughs) Reminds you of a a story? Uh, Reminds me of uh, an operating system. Yeah. It works really well, uh, in theory. And it works really well if you can get uh, a huge Uh, segment of the population on board. Um, unfortunately, I think what you're talking about does not have that yet. But maybe someday. Oh, Linux has a great community. Yeah, but it's not maybe the someday. majority of the it's not the majority of the market the way that this phone uh, is, or you know, at least from what I gathered is. Hmm. But um, they did talk about digital purchasing and how a lot of companies are starting to integrate the ability to buy stuff into their software, like um, the Facebook equivalent now has, I guess, a Facebook money and Facebook store. What, uh, the, uh, uh, the Facebook like one, a, you mean? Yeah, well, it's, it's not Facebook because it's Chinese Facebook. But, oh, right, right. Yeah, right the, the chat programs over there now have their own little markets. There's the, there's the eBay equivalent. And so they're all starting to integrate sort of the digital purchasing into the functioning of their software. So in response, I guess, to that piracy issue, it might be that we see movement on that in the next couple of years just based on the direction that the software is going. But I don't know. I am not an expert on China, uh, nor am I an expert on software development or marketing. (laughs) Uh, I was also really, really underdressed. I was the only person there uh, not in a suit because I didn't think that this was going to be a big deal. I had no idea who was going to be there. There weren't any cosplayers? And 
No, uh, I was in a t-shirt <laughs> and jeans, and everybody else was in a suit. And I was like, oh, this I was talking about China Man. Of course, it's really important. I didn't know who was going to be there. I I was just told, uh, "Hey, you should go to this thing. It's this week. Uh, here's the information." And I thought, "Oh, cool. I'll just walk in," and I did, and was very, very, <laughs> very awkward. Yeah. Uh, what I did learn is that I should just wear a suit wherever I go, so I'll always <laughs> be prepared. Um, they did have a uh, really good tea there. The the tea was, I mean, it was still in tea bags, but they were like cloth tea bags, which meant that they had gone the extra mile. Um, yeah, that's that's what that was. I got nothing. I got nothing else on that conference. If I remember something by looking through these papers that I grabbed, I'll I'll mention it. But um, I can put the link to the conference stuff in the show notes, and people who are interested can explore that website. So that's that's my that's my what I've been doing. Anybody else at all? No. I can hear the notes. Nope. All right. I guess that means we're moving on to our next segment, the sweet books segment. So sweet books. Um, Paul, you said uh, before the show started that you had read a lot of books. So why don't you start us out? All right, I'm just going to start off by saying that I uh, finally, uh, through all the trials and tribulations, managed to finish the very first Game of Thrones book. Good. It took me uh, a very long time, actually, and but I'm done with it now, and I can talk about uh, all the, that stuff, I guess, maybe. Who's your favorite character? Uh, <laughs> are you talking about just in the first book or throughout the series in general? Just the first book. Uh, that would have to easily be Tyrion, then. Mm. You can't uh, really do much better than that guy, Snark. Put yeah. your faith in the light. Yep. Um, um, but over the entire series, I have to say Arya is probably my favorite. Um, I don't even know who that is. She's the... Small uh, girl, super badass. Becomes an assassin. Yeah. Spoilers for book Spoiler alert, whatever. Spoiler. Mm. I've only seen the first two series of Game of Thrones, oh. so go easy on me. Ah. Okay. I've only read the first book. Uh, see, I'm, I don't have uh, space telly, so I have to wait for actual legal purchases. Ah, for the right. Game. Hey, mm. we, are, we are supporters of actual legal purchases on this podcast. I know. I've, I'm being, <laughs> I've been so ethical about Game of Thrones, even though they treat... Legal purchases, like poo. Mm. Yeah, basically, if you don't live in the United States, some for some reason they just don't want your money. Yeah, yeah uh, they want to. They want to. They said they want It works better for them to actually generate the hype and to actually force people to to wait for it. And because even if people like me downloaded it illegally, we'd still go and buy it anyway, that's and we'd true. still talk about it on social media. Oh yeah, huh. uh, hype generation was the thing that they talked about at the conference. Uh, how they were talking about how um, companies in China will produce a very small number of a highly, uh, highly desired commodity like the latest iteration of this phone or a smart car, and then raffle off uh, to say they've made a, a thousand. They'll raffle off to a million people a chance to buy one. 
Wow. And that's uh, yeah. And that's how they that's how they assure that they get one hundred percent sell through. But yeah, uh, yeah. Like I say, uh, we we support legitimate purchasing here. Piracy is uh, probably not a good thing. Yes, it's despite, not despite what us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've only read, I've only listened to on tape the first book, so you're further ahead than I am. Mm. Uh, how would no. you say? How would you say the first season of the TV show compares to the first book? Uh, I think the TV uh, show actually ends up doing a bit better. Hmm. Uh, I, I do like uh, a lot of the changes that they made. Uh, the only things that are nice about the book is uh, that you get to really see into people's minds. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff that they can't convey. It's uh, one of the reasons why Sansa is really boring in the uh, first season of the television show. But actually, it's very interesting in the book because you actually get to... Uh, look at all of her very intricate and complicated thoughts of being a princess. I uh, don't really have any affection for her at all. Uh, this... that, that's kind of true. I mean, I think that she gets a lot better uh, later on when she stops being so, um, oh, I want to be a princess and into a more interesting, complicated character. Uh, uh... She's very one-dimensional early on. Yeah. Uh, I guess I won't spoil I anything, but yeah, I feel uh, like her I, I character think, doesn't like, really develop at all. They they do give her actual conflict later on, uh, which helps her feel like a real character hmm. and not so boring. Okay, so you finished Game of Thrones. You were st- I remember you were about halfway through back in October. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much the case. So it takes me a very long time to read this uh, when because I've already seen the first season. Uh, the second book, I imagine, is going to take me a bit uh, less time, because uh, I know that there are more changes between the book and the uh, television series, so... Or that's okay. what I'm hoping. Um, so, th- the is other, that all you read? Uh, the other book that I read was uh, John Dies at the End. Uh, oh! I've got to read that. Yeah. The movie's great. The movie. It was real good. Yeah, <laughs> I have not seen the movie. I've been waiting to finish this book first because I knew I was going to get to it. Wait a minute, guys! Hyped it up. This means that we can never end this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if if I kill somebody with this podcast, <laughs> but I edit out every single part of the podcast and edited new parts to replace it, is it the same podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, so, also something so, uh, about alternate dimensions. So, yeah. from what I heard, the movie is like 15 pages of the book or something. Uh, I've heard that. It's like, uh, it takes the very first couple of pages and then builds upon sort of an alternate uh, universe story. Huh. Totally makes sense within the context of John Dies at the End. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I really like what the book's doing. It's uh, really engaging. It's actually very hard to put down. Are you going to read the sequel? I wasn't aware there was a sequel, but... Yeah, it's I, called... I, um, it's called This Book is Covered in Spiders. Seriously, dude, don't touch it. Oh, man. I, I someone uh, I someone put that. Someone put the uh, the first book in my hands and said, read this book, read it. <laughs> but uh, it didn't have a dust jacket, and it was a little worn, so it looked like just sort of generic... Uh, mid 90s science fiction hardcover uh that was just gray and not interesting at all 
You didn't uh, realize it was by the guy from Cracked. I, I did not realize that. Not one bit. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, he's a pseudonym uh, of David Wong on the book's cover. So, uh, yeah, uh, my girlfriend was is also reading it. And uh, we were going to have a nice discussion about it once we were both done. I happened to uh, rush past it because I had uh, some delayed flights and a lot of time to catch up on reading during them. Yeah. I like how in the opening of the movie where he says his name is David Wong and the guy's just like, wait, you're not Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) This is just that guy from Cracked. Yep. Uh, Gord, what have you read? I have read two books. Well, uh, a book and a third by Cory Doctorow. Uh, Is he your favorite author? I think he might be, <laughs> at least for the so moment, you, yeah. You bring him up a lot. Yep. Well, I uh, I found all of his books on Project Gutenberg, uh, and uh, uh, I think he might also have them up on Crap Hound as well, his website. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to read all of these. I'm going to read all of them. Uh, so, uh, I read Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, which is actually a book that gave me a lot of insight into why half of his posts on Boing Boing are uh, about Disneyland. Uh, it's about a... Uh, it's, it's science fiction, it's post-scarcity, and it's also post-death. And uh, it's in a world where uh, basically everything is free uh, and there's no reason to work. But there's like this... Uh, sort of like a, a respect currency uh, that, that happens automatically through a, uh, a HUD that is on a chip that is in your brain. Uh, and so people are still doing things like uh, operating the, uh, the Magic Kingdom. And, uh, and then it's a bunch of interesting stuff that happens to uh, these characters. And they're still sort of fighting for the old way of doing things, where... Uh, there are a bunch of animatronics and uh, people walking around in costumes, whereas the uh, the opposition is coming in, uh, and they've got this thing called flash baking, where they just immediately imprint wirelessly the entire experience on your brain, and uh, there's a bunch of back and forth there, and that was definitely interesting. And now I'm reading uh, this one is called Makers which is also an interesting topic. Uh, and also something that they cover pretty often on Boing Boing. So I guess there's a lot of uh, uh, overlap there. Makers is a great book. I read that a couple of years ago. I was, <laughs> I was actually uh, reading it until late last night, uh, which, which was uh, about four and a half hours ago. <laughs> which explains your lateness, I guess. Yeah. Or almost well, lateness. He was, he was ten minutes early. <laughs> Which is five minutes late in Japan. Is yeah, it really? it's uh, this is a very compelling book, and uh, after the podcast, I'm probably going to finish reading it. <laughs> I actually found Makers really. Uh, it scared me, even though it, you know, it's not a scary book, but it actually scared me as this sort of near future. What can technology do to society and consumer society and anybody who makes anything at all? It's how can people just be cut out of their own creations, really? And I thought it was it was really frightening. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of uh, near future, uh, scary books by Cory Doctorow, have you read Little Brother? 
I haven't read Little Brother, but I, I, they're sort of on my wish list. Mm. I read that when it was in the Humble Bundle. It was good. Yeah. Um, but speaking speaking of uh, the Magic Kingdom, um, do you guys you guys know um, J.P. LeBreton or not? No. No. Nope. J.P. LeBreton is the project lead on Space Space DF9 over at Double Fine. Ah. Um, and he was just talking recently about the Magic Kingdom and Disney World and how it's, it's sort of off-putting how people get really excited about Disney World as, sort of as this authoritarian fantasy of perfect control and more, more specifically uh, an authored experience, which is uh, something we can talk about when, more, when, we, when we get into video games because authored experiences. Um, but if you think about it, like everything in Disney World is put exactly so you see it at a very spe- from a very specific angle. It is very much sort of like building a video game to be experienced in real life, hmm. or rather, maybe maybe uh, building a video game, especially if a video game is like on rails, uh, is like building a Disney World on a on a computer. Hmm. Um, Anyway, it was just something I was th- I've been thinking about for a couple of days and sort of how authored content and the real world interact. Uh, so, um, is, that, is that everything you've read recently? Yes, I think so. All right, uh, Jonathan, do you, do you have any books that you would like to talk about? Yeah, uh, I recently, I'm, I'm currently reading Jeff Noon Pollen, which is weird because I've had it for about 10 years on my pile of shame, but I finally got around to starting it quite recently. Um, I had a bit of a slow start, but I've really got to enjoy it now. I'm about halfway through. But that's a really interesting art book where it has this technology that's almost blended into mysticism, into this other sphere of existence called Vert, and there's entities and creatures and uh, intelligences that live in the Vert, that it's almost, then Vert is almost like this cyber reality that exists around the entire planet, but it's it's somehow become more than that, it's become self-aware and it's creating its own life forms, and Pollen is about uh, a sort of a war that's breaking out between Vert and the real world. I'm not sure, I don't know if I've even explained it even remotely accurately. <laughs> That's so, what appears to be going on at the moment, hmm. and enormous amounts of hay fever. But it's, have you read the uh, the first one? I have, yeah. But I read that a good twelve years ago, so I had to do a bit of oh, revision wow. on uh, Wikipedia, font of all knowledge, to find out to remind me what had actually gone on. Yeah, it, I've it, never uh, heard of these uh, books before, but they seem really interesting from what I read on Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, definitely, real brain. Uh, twisters actually and it, if you want something imaginative then very much recommend it and also he's a brilliant technical writer so it's just fantastic language it's more than you expect for someone who's uh, almost psychedelic in some of his imaginings but he's actually a brilliant brilliant evocative emotional writer yeah it says that one of his books is he wrote as a as a sequel to Through the Looking Glass so if you're talking about I guess Weird, mind-bending, <laughs> trippy things that would uh, that make a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely this does. 
Yeah, it says that it is, that vert is a drug slash shared alternate reality that's accessed by sucking on color coded feathers. Hmm. So that almost sounds like uh, John dies at the end. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess kinda the, with <laughs> the soy sauce. So, so, magic, so that's what magic. I'm reading at the moment. And then before that, I read a book by Charles Strauss called Halt Instate, which is one of the best books I've read in years. I absolutely loved it. And I think you guys would, speaking to you, have seen what you're sort of enjoying. If you haven't read it, massive, massive recommendation for Halt Instate. Even though it's. Who was that by? Charles Strauss. Charles Strauss who's a very, very vocal Twitter user, a very interesting Twitter user, because he's incredibly switched on and very interested in actual technology and technological changes and advances. And Halton State is it's actually set in Scotland in, like, 20 years in the future. Oh, where I've, I've heard of Rule 34. Yeah, I think Rule 34, I believe, is the sequel to Halton State. Right. <laughs> right, right. I didn't read it, but I was aware of it. Cool. Uh, fantastic book. Very, very it's funny, but without without being a comedy. It's actually a dark uh, political and technological drama, but very funny, very entertaining, very enlightening as when you think about where computers are going and where computer technology and international hacking is going. Yeah, wow. International hacking's all over the news these days because of those credit card thefts. Um, I don't know. Has that has that news hit over in the UK? I guess it must have, right? About uh, Target and Neiman Marcus, or not? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I'm not sure I've seen that news. I mean, I normally catch this stuff on Ars Tech or the Register. If it's... So, it turns out that uh, for a period of anywhere between several months to only 30 days, depending on which company you ask. Uh, hackers were able to gain access to every single credit card that was used at Target and even Marcus for the period around Christmas, Thanksgiving. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> and it is, because, it is because in America, we are still using the incredibly easy-to-reach magnetic strip credit cards instead of the yeah. embedded chip ones that the rest of the well, world The uses. embedded chip ones are starting to uh, gain a little bit more traction in the U.S., but it's mainly yeah, on the next strip. Well, after this breach, they, uh, they are starting to now work on converting everything over as of this month. But it's going to take a, like a year to get everybody new credit cards. So uh, many, many credit cards were stolen. It was a huge deal. And it's going to motivate America to finally move over to a system that isn't uh, everything stored in a non-encoded method. I feel like uh, Canada only just moved over to that system, the uh, the new chip system. Uh, uh, you you did of, move over to it. A couple of years ago? Yeah, there was a... I was working in retail at the time, and there was a, a space where everyone was complaining about how their bank was making them get a new card, and uh, it looked like it wasn't really going to happen. Like, oh yeah, this this is just one of those things where uh, we're m- moving technology forward for the sake of moving it forward. Uh, but then a year later, everyone had one, and it was just not a big deal at all. It was weird yeah, seeing it's that the transition between uh, encryption and no encryption. 
So <laughs> it's a little more than just for the sake of moving it forward. Mm, it's yeah. interesting that um, the the correspondent for our local news station, who recently was moved over to London, um, was saying that if he tries to use his American credit card over there, they will actually charge him more because it is a bigger issue for them to try to run that kind of card. Hmm. So there is an extra fee attached. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll all have new cards within the next year or two. And Japan is a and, uh, cash society. It's the first century. It's warm in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. And so then I guess we're going to go into your field of communication and your mobile phone being your, your digital wallet anyway soon, so... Hmm. you have to change hmm. again. <laughs> well... It's not the worst. If you already have your phone, you won't really need to change anything. You won't have to get something. Yeah. Well, uh, if, if you're, everyone's going to need to have a smartphone, though, we're going to have to get to the point where everyone has a smartphone. And you've got to get a new one every year. <laughs> but I guess I guess I'm the only one who hasn't talked about a book at this point. So I just finished rereading *Stranger in a Strange Land* by Robert Heinlein. Um, I read this book between freshman and sophomore year of high school, originally, and I thought at the time, "Wow, that was one of the best books I've ever written." All right. <laughs> yep. yep. Also, you're a time traveler. Uh, yeah. Also, I'm a time traveler. Uh, that was one of the best books I've ever read. I, it's incredibly enlightening. Uh, it's changed the way I think about certain uh, social norms and the way that religions work, uh, and it, it really blew me away at the time. However, I have found uh, in the intervening years since high school that many of the things that blew my mind in high school are actually not so amazing in retrospect. <laughs> Uh, to my now jaded adult self. So I decided, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who, Paul, you know, I was talking to Nicole uh, ah. about Dune and how she is now reading all of Dune. And okay. I said, huh, I have not read Dune in a really long time, other than the original, which I right. read two you know, uh, for something. I should go back and reread all of Dune to see if it is as good as I remember. And yes, and yes, it definitely shelf. is. I walked over to my bookshelf and saw Stranger to Strange Land and thought, oh, <laughs> Stranger to Strange Land, that's not seven books. That's <laughs> <laughs> I should read that. Uh, which was really funny uh, two days later when she asked, hey, are you still reading all of Dune? Because she knows that I, that I read really quickly. And I said, ah, no, I, I read Stranger to Strange Land instead. <laughs> she was really sad at me. Mm. But, um, so but is it blowing your mind? Yes, you it, know? Is just, it is just as good. It is just <laughs> as good. Um, I was really afraid that it would not hold up. But it is really, really fantastic. I think it is educational in a very different way than I found it when I was in high school. Um, because when I was in high school, I did not think as deeply about social norms and religious thought and sort of the way that society handles people who do not agree with convention in quite the same way that I do now. So I would, 
I would recommend. Would recommend to everybody. I feel like, especially if you live in a modern Western society, this is a book that you should read, and it is especially, especially stunning given that it was written in, I guess, the '60s. The depth with which it deals with issues like homosexuality and Islam, both of which were not really things that you talked about in 1961. Hmm. So, like, literally just out of the '50s. So that's that's what I just finished reading, and what I am actually not reading but listening to on tape now because uh, I got it from the latest Humble Bundle, the Humble Audiobook Bundle, is uh, the Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie, which uh, if you do not know the story about, I'm gonna before I before I tell the story, does everybody know the story about the Satanic Verses or not? I do not. I do not. I mean, okay. I was obviously in the UK. Yeah, well, okay, yes. I, I figured you would know, given that uh, Rushdie is, he, he's an English citizen, right? So, yeah. Um, so when this book was written in, I guess, what, 89-ish? Or somewhere thereabouts, uh, it was praised very highly for its content, for its literary style. Uh, unfortunately, it was declared by the Ayatollah Khomeini, supreme leader of Iran at the time, to be blasphemous. And Khomeini issued a fatwa. Uh, and a fatwa in the Islamic, uh, in Islam, is a legal opinion, basically, at its core. Uh, it's not binding. It is uh, any more than a legal opinion by a lawyer would be, but if you are somebody who listens to the Supreme Leader of Iran, then it might as well be. Mm. And this fatwa said that this book is blasphemous and that all Muslims should immediately attempt to kill Salman Rushdie. Wow. wow. If they cannot, yeah, if they cannot kill Salman Rushdie for whatever reason, then they should direct those who are able to his location so that they can kill him. Um, and this did lead to the attacks and death of several publishers, translators who worked on the book for various countries as well. Wow. Um, Rushdie, wow. Was, yeah, Rushdie was forced into hiding uh, government protection, witness protection type stuff for like 20 years. Um, he has only recently emerged, relatively recently, um, unfortunately for him, uh, a fatwa cannot be lifted by anybody except for the person who issued it. And uh, that particular person in this situation is now dead. <laughs> so, uh, oh, he, sucks to be that guy. Yeah, it, he is at this point confident enough in his safety that he is no longer in hiding. But uh, it was quite a big deal for many years. Um, I'm maybe a quarter to a third of the way through so far, but I have not come across anything that <laughs> I have found to be especially blasphemous or objectionable. Uh, I am also not Islamic, so mm. take, take that as you will. Um, it's very good. Like, it, it deserved the praise that it got. Um, it's not the first book that I read, that I have read by him. I have read uh, Haroon and the Sea of Stories as well. Uh, this is better. Haroon was a children's book. 
I feel. Um, I think both literally and uh, in terms of content. I believe that he said that he wrote Perun to explain to his children what happened to him. But this is, it's about two actors from India who are traveling. To, that's sort of a frame narrative for the various magical realism stuff that, are, that is the plot of the book, which occurs partially in flashback, partially in story. Characters meld into other characters, meld into angels and demons. Uh, the narrator is a character who talks directly to the reader sometimes. It's very... It, it's, not, it's not a typical narrative structure, but it is very good so far. Um, and I think the Humble Bundle is still going, so if this is a thing that interests you, you can get it for, I don't know, five ninety four US, maybe? I don't know. I definitely have. You have a... Already I'll have to look into it. Yep. yep. There are other good books in that uh, bundle as well, like uh, a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius is in there. Um, there are some good young adult sort of novels in there. If, if YA fiction is your thing, um, there's a um, Cormac McCarthy novel in there. But uh, I think I want to read The Road before I read uh, anything else by him. So that's what I've been reading. Before we go well, on, one interesting Salman Rushdie fact is whilst he was in hiding for the initial few years, he became a massive game nerd and was an enormous fan of Nintendo and played Mario till he was an absolute master at it. Hmm. Wow. You know, given that <laughs> I, I bet that in government confinement hiding for your life, you don't have a lot, of, a lot to do. <laughs> Uh, I don't find that incredibly shocking, but I do think it's pretty funny. Um, especially, yeah, you know, I, I now have this image of Salman Rushdie in my head, just going, it's a me! <laughs> <laughs> yep, there, there's, uh, you can, you can see, there's footage of him playing, uh, I think it was on a Super Nintendo, actually. Okay, I should, I'm gonna look that up. Uh, I bet, you know, if I find that if I find that video, I will put it in the show notes for our listeners to also enjoy. Um, so that's, that's, that was actually a pretty good book segment. That was a way better book segment than we usually have, because everybody had something <laughs> yes. to talk about. Good job. Good job, everybody. Yeah. We're, we're finally getting this down. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't just me having a book from 300 years ago to talk about <laughs> Uh, but I think I think we've exhausted our literary. Uh... Moving on to the next segment. Yeah, let's let's move on. Uh, section section three. Section X. Uh, sec- section three: A machine for sections. Um, <laughs> sweet video game segment. Uh, I went last, so I guess I'll go first. Seems fair. Seems fair. Okay. What have I been playing? Um, really, what I've been playing is uh, Street Pass Me Plaza on the 3DS. <laughs> uh, yep. Because when we went to New York, uh, I went, got a lot of Street Pass tags and thus have grown many flowers in my flower. Turns out that nerds have a lot of 3DSs. 
Yeah. Uh, every single person except for you, Paul, had a 3DS. Hmm. Is that true? I think so. But you, do, you do or you don't? I don't have a 3DS, I'm afraid. I'm letting yeah. the site down. Uh, well, you also were not in our in our group at New York, which is what I was yeah. referring to. Fair play. But, no, the, the weird thing was that you were there, and we just didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> no, the weirder part is that you did spot pass without a 3DS. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess for those who don't know about this, um, the 3DS can detect other 3DS systems that are nearby and exchange data with them if you just are carrying around in your pocket, and then you could use the characters that you've uh, tagged with your 3DS in a variety of games that are that range from incredibly tedious to really fun, uh, depending on your inclination. And uh, if this weren't brought to you by the people who brought you Mario and Zelda, it would be super creepy that you can just track the habits of children in their day-to-day lives and where they will be at certain times. Yeah. Because those things are just broadcasting that stuff. Street past the same person every day, you know where that person is. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, That is pretty creepy, actually. (laughs) And if you build a, uh, uh, a wireless router with homebrew software, you can just read all of that information. Yeah. But, what have I been playing? Um, let's see, I'm saying um again, because I cannot think of anything that I've played. Uh, oh yeah, I've play- I played uh, Luigi's Mansion Dark Moon, which is the sequel to the GameCube classic, Luigi's Mansion. I've heard good things. Yeah, okay, so whereas in Luigi's Mansion your goal was to rescue Mario... Uh, in this, your goal is, it seems like it's twofold. Ostensibly, you're trying to gather pieces of this thing called the Dark Moon, which makes all the ghosts not hostile, and was broken by King Boo, so you need to put it back together so the ghosts aren't all hostile anymore. But really, it seems that you're just in it for the cash. Uh, <laughs> it seems yeah, like man. Luigi is more of a Wario thing. That, that dirty ghost hunting money. <laughs> it's divided unlike in the original you're not in one big mansion it's divided into missions uh, across many different mansions all, ac- all in this ghost valley hmm. it plays a lot like an adventure game you sort of walk around and tap on stuff and try to figure out the puzzles which will let you progress as a, um, much more so than the original Luigi's Mansion I'm not sure I like it more than the original, but it's certainly fun. Um, I've got nothing else to say about it, really. It's it's cute. It's got all that Nintendo polish. Uh, Luigi sort of whistles to himself as he walks around in time with... The, he whistles the theme song that he's around. <laughs> nice. He's upgraded, he's upgraded his Game Boy Horror to a Nintendo dual screen, ah. which has... Uh, a retro Mario ringtone because it's also a cell phone. It's not- can you imagine if the 3DS were also a cell phone? That would be pretty great. I'd buy it. Honestly. I mean, I uh, I, I would also buy it again. I, w- I would buy it uh, for plenty of reasons. Uh, it'd give me a reason to uh, play handheld DS games again, or handheld Nintendo games again. You know what I'd like to do is play Super Metroid on my 3DS. I can't, uh, can't think of a reason why I shouldn't be able to, except that they have arbitrarily decided that... uh, You're not allowed to play console games on a handheld. Yeah. I got Super Metroid for $0.10 on the Wii U. That was a great purchase. 
I, uh, they did a uh, they did a promotion where every fifteen days, maybe every month, a different classic game was ten cents. Wow. So uh, one of them was Super Metroid. Mm. I guess it was part of their desperate attempts to get anybody to buy. Them, you know? <laughs> Which uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the news lately, but uh, they're not, not doing, doing very stuff. well. Nintendo has officially declared the system a flop, which is uh, wow. well, not not good. I don't think, uh, I, I feel like everyone kind of saw this coming, given uh, the Wii U's poor lineup of games on release and for the year after. The thing, I mean, it's still the current market leader. It has still sold more units than the PS3 or the PS4 or the X-Bone, but... I guess what that says right now is that everybody is hurting. Mm. I don't. I don't That's know. Possible. Everyone else just has televisions and stereos and operating systems to uh, fall back on. Yeah, I guess. Um, I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm not worried. There are a lot of people that are calling for Iwata to resign from his position. There are a lot yeah. of people that are saying Nintendo is over. <laughs> nah, I, I, I have confidence that, uh, yeah, I have confidence that the new Mario Kart and Smash Brothers will help drive a lot of sales. Smash Bros. on the 3DS, I'm excited. There are a lot of people who are saying that Nintendo needs to move to, like, cell phones or to putting its stuff on the Xbox and PS3 and just become a software company. I don't but, know. Yeah, I'm not, I think that Nintendo, Nintendo is sitting on so much money. Yeah. That. It's not like they're going to be fine for a while. Their handheld sales are still not amazing, but still carrying the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, handheld. I mean, hand, handheld sales are down just in general because of cell phones. But I think that there's still going to there's always going to be a market for a dedicated gaming machine. There's also always going to be a market for Pokemon. Yeah, yeah. I was I was, <laughs> I was talking about this with somebody, and I said. Nintendo, like, Nintendo has so many trump cards that they can play if they want to. They could put up a video on their website where it's just Iwata walks onto the camera, goes, Pokemon MMO, and then walks <laughs> off. <laughs> like, that would sell. Like, that, that would turn them around. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, every, like, they, and I can't imagine that the thought has not crossed someone's mind over at Nintendo to play I one of these. I they just put it in their back pocket for like, uh, if we yeah. really need to. But that's the thing. Like, they've got so many outs at this point that I'm not worried. Also, just... I think uh, the issues with Nintendo... Sorry to do it. Sorry, guys. Mm-hmm. One of the issues with Nintendo is that whilst they've got all these massive, amazing names with, you know, Mario and Luigi and Pokemon, that all of their system sellers are actually selling systems to the same group of people which means you can only play your trump card once and have it work, which is, I mean, their system seller on last on the, on the Wii was Wii Sports, which was a system seller to people who'd never, ever bought a game before. And it, mm. That's what brought them all those million, billions and billions of people into the system. Right. But they're all their, their, you know, their classic big IPs probably were just as successful as they've ever been. And maybe with the Wii U, they you know, every, all so many of the 
big Nintendo fans have already bought the Wii U, and that's why it's actually had okay numbers, but it's it's dropping off massively. And the the big risk with the Wii U is not the number of systems it's sold so far, but actually the sales curve is really poor. It, you know, it's it sold at launch, but in okay numbers, but its sales curve is really really shallow now. Whereas with other hardware, with the Xbox and PlayStation, they've had really good upward curves. Right. So I, I think that's why Nintendo and all the watches are so worried about it. Yeah, they slashed their profit uh, profit uh, predictions by 66% or something, which is huge. Uh, I, I think- so here's a question. I mean, you surely know loads and loads of people who bought who were not gamers, who bought a Wii console, how many of those are actually were in active use for more than six months? Mm. Not a huge number. Which, which, so this is the other thing that I'm worried about with Nintendo, is they, they sold millions and millions of consoles called a Wii to people who ended up playing Wii U, and, uh, playing, playing uh, Wii Sports and loving bowling, but didn't really become gamers. And now they've got right. another console out, also called a Wii. And perhaps right. expect confusion those in the market. to go back yeah. more. Yeah. And I, I suspect that might have been a mistake. Well, it's mm-hmm. the same thing that happened with the 3DS. People right, were, there are just too many versions of them. Whether the DS, is this just like the same thing with 3D in it? They didn't understand that it was the same, that it was a completely yeah. new piece of hardware. And so they, is yeah, this yeah. Wii U thing, is it just a controller that right. you buy from your already existing Right, right, because all the uh, advertisements just have the extra screen controller. There's also the problem that uh, Nintendo keeps, like, they added the Wii Mini, which was just, like, adding to this uh, confusion. And the, like, uh, oh, the 2DS. Yeah, the Wii U. The thing, the, I think the, the thing to remember is that they were never going to replicate the success of the original Wii. Because that was a, that was a fad on a social level far beyond what a game system normally does. Absolutely. The thing that the Wii did, which was really, really fantastic, which you touched on, uh, Jonathan, a couple minutes ago, was it, it grew the market. So after the GameCube, did did any of you read the recent uh, article about the GameCube? I've got it bookmarked on a Gamma Sutra. If you if you haven't and you are interested in that era of deal making and business decisions at Nintendo. And not just at Nintendo, but at Microsoft and Sony as well, as well, from sort of the end period of the Nintendo 64 through the launch of the GameCube. Um, it is fascinating. It is also like 20 pages long. <laughs> it is incredibly in-depth. And uh, our guest next week, actually, is going to be able to talk uh, firsthand about some of that stuff. But it, Nintendo, when it came out with the GameCube, was of the opinion that we don't need third-party anything. People will buy our systems for our first-party content. And mm. because our first-party content sells, third-party developers will want to come to us to publish on us. But we do not want... Like, we don't need them. Right. And that, given that the GameCube didn't do so well, uh, didn't seem to really work. Um, part of that had to do with Nintendo's president at the time, who died last year. Uh, before right. before Iwata, he he was much more traditionally uh, conservative Japanese philosophy in terms of the way he ran the business. 
but when the Wii U, or when, not the Wii, when the Wii was in development, and it turns out that the, there are patent documents showing a Wii remote in use with the GameCube, because the GameCube has a whole bunch of really cool hardware in it that never got used, like the ability yeah. to output stereoscopic 3D. Yeah, which there's also like, that uh, very uh, poorly used uh, internet adapter. Yeah. Yes, that was at least a thing that that hit the market. Yeah, that's true. But there is if Nintendo sort of went they they went to this strategy called the Blue Ocean strategy of marketing, which involves moving what they call upstream. To, un- un- to untapped markets. So whereas the Xbox 360 and the PS3 catered to quote-unquote hardcore gamers, the Wii embraced the notion that there are no such thing as the hardcore gamer. There is no such thing as the hardcore gamer. Everybody can be a gamer, and there is a uh, really good article that uh, expounds on this in depth, which I can put in the show notes as well, called Birdman and the Casual Fallacy, uh, which talks about why Nintendo was so successful with the Wii, which came out, I don't know, 2007, 2008, by uh, Sean Malstrom, who runs a blog that uh, sometimes I'll write into. But he is a video game business uh, analyst. And with the Wii U, it seems that Nintendo has gone the direction more towards the hardcore. Because something that they were criticized with with the Wii a lot was that this this has alienated their core demographic. They're more interested in casual games than in their core titles like Zelda and Mario and Metroid. Hmm. Hmm. So, it's it's showing that maybe that's not really really what they need to do. I don't know. I spend a lot of time uh, working on this sort of thing, so I have a lot <laughs> to say about it. Mm. <laughs> it's nice, though. It's helpful. Yeah. Um, this is maybe. See, this is why I was at that conference clearly because I do I do actually know about marketing, maybe. No, no, I don't. I'm just making that up. <laughs> you just know what you've already heard and seen from other people on the internet. Well, and I know, I guess, I know from observing sales trends from basically when the GameCube launched was when I started really paying attention to the sales of consoles and how they were made. So this is my third generation actively following it. So I feel like uh, sort of a handle on how things work. I mean, no All one's right. paying for it, but I guess on the uh, other hand, people are yeah. paying Michael Pachter, and he is not often correct in my experience. He's making huge piles of money, so maybe I should uh, maybe I should find out who's in pay and blame him and hire myself out to them. Yeah, that could work. See, that's what I've been playing. I've been playing Nintendo's profit versions. <laughs> <laughs> Nintendo Business Simulator 2014. Oh, yeah, I played Surgeon Simulator 2013. Yeah, um, I, I remember uh, hearing you. Incredibly frustrating experience. 
You uh, ma- you made a time lord. I remember hearing about that. I, I did. Ma- I made a time lord by sticking a heart inside <laughs> of a dude who already had a heart. <laughs> because I couldn't figure out how to get the rib cage out, and it just said perform a heart transplant. So I was just like, eh, whatever. I'll just put this heart inside of him. He can just have two. And it didn't work, but it gave me an achievement. Uh, I successfully broke open a heavy and tore out his heart and replaced it with a baboon heart and then stuck a thing into it and uh, hit it with my meta beam as, huh. a, as the medic from Team Fortress 2. Because there is a Team Fortress 2 mode in that. Once, once I realized that this game wasn't you didn't need to be precise like an actual doctor. You were literally just the medic from Team Fortress 2 tearing <laughs> out people's organs and it didn't matter. The game became yep. much, much easier. Also way more enjoyable. Yeah. I was like, okay, I gotta like move these ribs. And then I was like, oh, whatever. I'm just gonna take this drill to his ribs and you know, maybe there's all stuff left afterwards. <laughs> he doesn't need any ribs. I mean, yeah. like, it's those okay, aren't a necessary... Ribs grow back. Ribs grow back. <laughs> uh, turns out ribs do grow back. I uh, I just while doing medical research uh, on really? surgeons. Yeah, I was reading the the section of the Team Fortress wiki about the meet the medic section after playing that level, and it said contrary to the medic to what the medic says, uh, ribs do grow back depending on how they break. Hmm. That's actually helpful um, information. Let's yep. go break all your ribs for science. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you uh, monster. Legacy, finally. Mm. Because uh, dragon class is broken. Um, I played uh, Spelunky every day. And then I got into a, a huge argument with Gord about whether Spelunky's <laughs> a kid or not. Well. Here's. Yeah. Hmm. I'm saying Gord that. Spelunky is a bad game. Mm. No, Spelunky is a bad game. Those were your exact words. Uh, yeah, maybe I said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get that some people might enjoy Spelunky, but I don't think it's as good as a game that uh, you have discarded out of hand, which I think is much, much, much better. <laughs> it's like a different genre of game. What is a one is like a a roguelike ass what is a metro mm. They have similar theming aesthetically. Lemelena is just brilliant. Yeah, I I really want to like Matla Mulana, but it has Castlevania one controls. And <laughs> I I can't do it. I can't. I get so mad just from the basic world navigation. That's mm. not a good place to get mad from. Yeah. Like the, I don't like that when you jump, you can't change what direction you're moving in midair. Uh, you can if you jump straight up and then move during your fall. That that, but you can't if you jump forward and then you're you realize you're gonna overshoot by a little bit and you hit back. Nothing happens. Right. Because physics. Right. But that's, but that's, not, that's how jumping has always worked in video games. Yeah, that's right. exactly what I said. What I said was, I want in my video games when I jump, I want all of the jumping to be like Mario, because I feel like Mario, the original Mario Brothers, figured out how to do satisfying jumps, yeah. and that's just it was what I wanted for a reason. Hmm. Not the not the jumping in uh, Donkey Kong, though. not the original original Mario jumping. 
that's uh oh yeah that was in fact you couldn't uh change direction once you jumped yeah uh it was i feel maybe slightly forgivable because you weren't trying to explore a metroid sized world but like a a, a tiny little area of girders Mm. um but yeah it's still donkey kong is not one of my favorite games despite paying 10 cents for it on the game (laughs) you've got to get the uh the one on the 3DS Virtual Shop, because you can't play that on a console. Uh, the uh, the one that was released on the Game Boy, which I guess is technically Donkey Kong 2 or something? Oh, Donkey Kong 94? Yeah. Uh, it was on the original Game Boy? Yeah. Yes, that one is real good. Yep. Uh, I, my cousin had that when we were little, and I really enjoyed it. Hmm. So I think that's all I've been playing. I played some more Super Luigi. Uh, Super Luigi wants me dead. I recruited multiple players to help me get through uh, 100% of this really, really difficult level based on Van Gogh painting. And I did it by uh, jumping on them so that I would not die, but they would fall into acid. Huh. And then they got games over, so uh, I didn't actually get to keep my progress. Which serves me right, I guess. Right, mm. What have you guys been playing? That's that's enough of what I've been playing. That's a lot of me. Somebody else talk. Go. Uh, okay. Well, I will just go. I was. I have been playing uh, through the Phoenix Wright games for the iOS because I played through the games a while ago, but I've never legally owned them. I decided to uh, do the right thing and uh, go buy them. For the iOS, and I can play them on my phone. Good. And how are those? How's the uh, uh, translation are, there? I, I love them. Uh, they are great. Uh, they they've got really good writing, um, or yeah, decent writing, decent <laughs> enough writing. And, okay. Oh no, they're 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 pretty silly with uh the entire thing. Their their legal system is really dumb, but. <laughs> Uh, their legal system is such that you can use, uh, you can call the judge to fight for you in Marvel vs. Capcom 3. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Yep. I have never played one of those. Uh, well, it's on iOS. It's $5 per game, which is way cheaper than you could otherwise, or you would otherwise have had to gotten it. Uh, I believe that they are all being re-released on 3DS as a bundle with new stuff. Well, that would be sweet, uh, because uh, you will very quickly find out that while the first game is very fun, the last part of that game is by far the most fun, because that is the only part that has actually been specifically made to uh, take advantage of the DS's sweet touchscreen functions. Right, because it was originally a Game Boy Advance game, wasn't it? Yep. Huh. And uh, basically, it was you, it, I can imagine it being a lot more tedious to do the investigation because in the iOS and DS versions you just touch place on screen, uh, and in the Game Boy Advance version, I think what it was is you just uh, had to uh, use your uh, up your D pad in order to find the right spot. Well, I guess like worst case scenario for playing those games, I will play one when uh, Professor Layton versus Phoenix Wright comes out. That's, I feel like that should have been out a long time ago. Yeah, someday. 
So what are you hoping uh, for there? Is that going to be a fighting game? No, it is a, uh, it's just a Professor Layton game mashed into a Phoenix Wright game. It's got I think it would make a much better game. fighting game. It would be amazing. <laughs> I am still holding out for Professor Layton as a character in the new Super Smash Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at, at least that's his trophy. That would be great. He's, he's all that. Oh, gentleman is excellent at fighting. <laughs> and then uh, he pulls out his sword from the second game and stabs somebody. And uh, then he can shout objection. It would be amazing. <laughs> that's, what he, that's, what, that's what Phoenix Wright does in Marvel vs. Capcom, right? He like throws papers at people and then shouts objection. And the gavel <laughs> comes down and hits them. I think I read that he was the strongest character. Like, yeah, no paper joke. cuts hurt, man. Yeah, seriously. Way more than getting hit by the Hulk. Yeah. I've been playing Saints Row 4 on my Xbox 360. I still am a last-gen gamer. I have not bought an Xbox One or PS4 yet. I've been, so I went back and got it myself. Saints Row 4, which I'm really enjoying in all its ridiculous idiocy and completely unguided <laughs> idiocy as well, where it basically says, listen, you don't want really want to play a story anyway, like you have to <laughs> yeah. in GTA. Here, here is a big city that you can jump around because that was really good in Crackdown. And you know, they did the right yeah. thing because Crackdown is one of the best games ever made. And to just give you that again, only this time you can run up buildings. Yeah, okay. So I just have to ask, have you played through the other Saints Row games? No, this is my very first Saints Row game. Apart from playing a very, very tiny demo of the very first Saints Row game, when it probably was trying to be a bit more GTA. (laughs) Yeah, that one was a GTA clone. Watching the evolution Um, of that series has been fantastic. it, It has. Uh... I believe I've mentioned this uh, previously, but Saints Row 4 did uh, one thing uh, that I really love, uh, which was uh, giving you the ability to have superpowers, because I have always hated the gun combat in Saints Row and Grand Theft Auto. So uh, being able to just uh, ignore all of the driving, running around, shooting people, and get to the just hit them in the face really hard portion of the game uh, made it way more enjoyable for me. You're really a, a hit-them-in-the-face type of player, aren't you? Because you also played Barbarian in Diablo. I, I Yes. Uh, for it, I remember for a while in RPGs, I was just like, yeah, I, l- I love playing ranged classes, never get hit, kite everything forever. And then at some point, I don't really know when. I think it might have been uh, due to WoW, but eventually I just went to. You know what's more fun than running away from things? Just hitting them in the face. <laughs> just Just killing them. And thus you rolled a paladin or whatever. Uh, yeah, and thus I rolled paladin. Um, I remember a few years ago, I was at E3, and I was playing... I think I think it might have been... Is it Prey? One of the very old first Xbox 360 games. Hmm. And I, I played a, a multiplayer game, and all the guys were sitting were running around trying to find the best, most meaty man weapons to shoot each other with. And because I'm actually really rubbish at video games, I'm going to lose anyway. So I just picked up the spanner and went and picked people <laughs> about <laughs> To my 
I either to my shame or to my eternal pride, I won, and I beat everyone by quite <laughs> some margin. And I could hear people sighing and tutting next to me as they realised that it was me that was beating them by the head with a spanner. But it, 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 yeah, definitely getting in close is is something to be proud of. I think. Yeah, I mean today Saint Charles went in a whole, in a whole violent section in Saint Charles. We're hitting people with a tentacle. <laughs> yeah, I think if you're playing a game with guns, you have to make melee combat feel rewarding because it's so much riskier. Yeah, that's true. Um, and that's I mean, like Halo, where you don't need to be near a person at all to kill them with a sword. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I've been trying to do that on the uh, the Xbox here, but apparently we got a patched version or something. Or I'm just no good at pulling that trick off. I don't know. Uh, I own Halo 3 because it was free, but I don't actually have ever played Halo for more than 10 minutes. Mm. It's got a surprisingly good story. Yeah, it seems like it's really involved. Um, But yeah, Melee Combat was how I played through both of the first two Bioshock games. Because they give you a bunch of guns, but it was way more fun to play through using the wrench, or uh, in the case of Bioshock 2, the giant drill that was your arm. (laughs) Yeah. So, Gord, what have you been playing? Anything? I've been playing The Banner Saga by oh. Stoic Studio, and that is a uh, fantastic game. The art is all hand-drawn. Uh, all of the animation is handmade, uh, and it's a, uh, it's a tactics game, but between battles you uh, progress through the world in a sort of like an Oregon Trail a bunch of non-combat adventures, uh, and you have to manage supplies and uh, make actually surprisingly difficult decisions about uh, who to bring along with you and how to resolve uh, conflicts within your group. And uh, it's super good, and I would recommend it. I would recommend all of you uh, go back in time and have kickstarted it. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if it's up on Steam just as a uh, purchase yet, but uh, when it is, that's uh, that's a thing that you should do. I think it is. I think I saw it on Steam yesterday or the day before. Oh, excellent. Cool. It caught my eye because, obviously, it's called Saga, which is this week's game in drama about the word saga. Mm. Yep. Oh, right, because uh, what what's her name copyrighted the word saga, right? King, uh, yeah, yeah. King, not successfully yet. Saga while while back, actually. Yeah, it's still uh, pending. Relating to games, to video games, rather than the entire word. Right, right. All right, sort of like T-Mobile owns the color magenta as it relates to cell phones. Weird. They don't. Uh, the thing is, King doesn't actually have the trademark yet. It's still in the process of uh, uh, being processed, and. Uh, the Banner Saga Kickstarter and name uh, have actually uh, actually pre-existed them submitting the trademark. So there's some interesting things going on, uh, calling them out on a trademark that they don't own uh, on something that existed before they even submitted. Doesn't Sega or something have an entire series of games called Saga, like a camel case? Yes, one of them was... Uh, Localized in North America as Final Fantasy Legend. Three of them, in fact. 
on the Game Boy. So uh, I feel like that constitutes part of your art. Oh yeah, there there are all kinds of games with saga in the title. You can uh, get coexistence yeah. rights as for those as well. It's yeah. I, I mean, whilst it really it really makes my skin crawl that they're trying to trademark a, a word like that, but it might actually not be as bad as some people are, are, are fearing. Mm. They have successfully. You've got to be. You're just going to see how it pans out, really. Mm. They do have the trademark for the word candy, which is just sort of mind-boggling. Um, yep. But speaking speaking of uh, Kickstarter and uh, tactics games, have you guys seen Unsug Story: Tale of the Guardians on Kickstarter? Not seen that. I feel like nope. I was looking at it. Okay, Unsung Story: Tale of the Guardians is a Kickstarter from Yatsumi Matsuno, who. Uh, maybe you haven't heard of, but you have probably heard of his games, which are Final Fantasy Tactics and Vagrant Story and Final Fantasy XII and uh, most recently Crimson Shroud on the 3DS, which is really good if you have a 3DS. It's a D&D campaign with dice and everything just run by a computer, basically. Um, and it is a tactics game set over a 77-year war. And whereas in most video games you are a hero, in this game you jump around from characters to characters, from all the different sides of the conflict and political machinations that are going on, uh, playing sort of the little guys that influence the, the directions of the battle, but aren't remembered by history. And the way that you play the game and the way that your battles turn out influence the course of the story. Cool. Yep. Mm-hmm. It is, it is currently on Kickstarter. They are at $423,000 of their $600,000 goal. And they have 20, 20 days to get us. They're probably going to make it. <laughs> um, all of their stretch goals are really cool. They range from things like additional missions and characters to bringing in the composer from Final Fantasy Tactics to do it, to bringing in the translators from the Final Fantasy series to work on the script. So they're, uh, they're, they're doing something that looks really cool if you're into tactics games. I'm hmm. probably going to have to go kickstart that. That sounds awesome. While you're on yep. Kickstarter, uh, go check out La Milana 2, which got 100000 on their first day and uh, 20000 since of their uh, 200000 goal. Bomb a lot of two. A machine for pigs. Yep. I'm uh, I'm excited about that. You know what we played? Uh, at least two of us. And haven't talked about, I don't think, since uh, it was after our last podcast. Is Bravely Default. Oh, yeah. I'm not the one oh, yeah. who played that game. <laughs> uh, I, I can just jump in and say some stuff about it, I guess. So... We've been playing the uh, Bravely Default demo, and uh, it's super good. What they did was they uh, made a completely unconnected part of the story. Uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Self-contained. Prequel. A prequel campaign to the main game. Which uses all of the game's systems, uh, but uh, doesn't cross into any of the uh, full game's story. Uh and, uh, yeah, it's really fun. They made an entire self-contained little world here. Uh, and there are a bunch of quests to go on and uh, monsters to fight and secrets to grind. 
and systems to destroy because black mages are too good. Yep. Man, don't un- um, don't underestimate that uh, uh, the black mage passive ability that gives black magic a percentage <laughs> of strength greater yeah, based on uh, yeah. how many black mages there every, are. For every other person with that ability, black magic gets like a twenty five percent boost or something. Yeah, it's just nuts. <laughs> so with four black mages at the party, you're hitting for double damage with every single spell. Yes, awesome. Yep. Yep. Uh, of course, the downside is that black mages are made of paper, so <laughs> it's it's interesting. Um, trying to think, they did the thing that everybody should do with demos, if possible. Yeah, which is I agree. Uh, the demo is a completely separate and piece of content that isn't something that's already in the game. However, I mean, the downside is that this adds to development time and costs. Mm. Uh, but you can transfer your data, like all your items in your inventory and your quest progress, from the demo into the full game. Uh, is it? I don't think. I don't think it's your inventory. I think no. You get. Well, you get. Um, there are a bunch of packs of. It yeah. gives you by completing quests. It gives you stuff in your inventory, and those packs that you get for completing quests transfer. They're like. Uh, yeah. They seem to be on if, uh, roughly the same level as the. Uh, yeah, it's like one tier up from the starting gear. So Fallout get... 3. They, they had a bunch of uh, bonus packs for uh, Fallout 3 based on where you bought it. If you bought it at Walmart, you'd get uh, a gun reskin at a, and a canteen. And if you bought it at... Uh, uh, it seems to me that it's just one tier up in terms of gear power from the starting gear, so that you'll be pretty powerful compared to a normal level 1 player. Yeah. But that it won't break the game after the first time. Plus a bunch of, like, revives and phoenix downs and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good, because like, that's uh, always the first thing that I spend all my money, my money on, before equipment even. Yeah, and uh, potions and stuff. But another game that did a really good thing, like, similarly with the demo, was the Stanley Parable. Oh, yeah? Yep, the Stanley Parables demo is a standalone demo where the narrator from the Stanley Parable is guiding you around the Stanley Parable demo tried to demonstrate what the game The Stanley Parable is about. Um, unfortunately, the demo will not start properly, and he gets very flustered, and you have to explore lots of different places trying to reach the demo. <laughs> it's, very, it's very good. It's yeah. written in exactly the style even of the game. Have, even if you've played The Stanley Parable, uh, the demo is worth playing. Separately. Sweet. Yep. I spent a lot of time in the demo sitting uh, in a single room hitting the uh, hitting a button that just said five. When you eight. hit the button? It's oh, at eight. eight. Yeah, so you, there's, there's this button and when you press it, a voice says eight. <laughs> and the more that you press it, the more annoyed the narrator gets because he thinks that maybe maybe you think that this is the Stanley Parable. Like Maybe you think that this is what the game is. And are you the sort of person who is content with doing nothing but pressing the same button over and over again? Is that like is that the sort of thing that entertains you? And so you just sit there pressing the button over and over and over again to try and hear what he has to say <laughs> about a person who presses the button to make the the voice say eight. And I guess you 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 realize that you literally are doing nothing but standing in front of that thing, pressing that button over and over and over again. <laughs> But you keep doing it, 
you just keep doing it because you want to hear what the game has to say. And yep. so it's, it's just like that as a commentary on video games is a great example of what the larger Stanley Parable is like. Hmm. So that's what that's what we've been playing, I guess. Does anybody else have any other games that we'll talk about before we get to our next segment? Uh, well, uh, Justin and I, well, this was a bit ago, but Justin and I have played a really great game called The Typing of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's true. We did. I've heard did of that, that one. <laughs> have you? Have you played it? Do you have anything you want to say about it? Also, this is a segment transition. <laughs> I, uh, I, I have to admit... I have a confession to make. I did not actually manage to play uh, this week's assignment, The Typing of the Dead Overkill. For shame. That is because... No, he tried. He tried. I, I, I was there. <laughs> if, I try, if I type uh, Typing of the Dead into Steam, it shows me the DLC, and that is the only search result. And I can click on it, and for some reason, strangely, it does not have a link to the full game, which I think pretty much every DLC... Uh, product page on Steam does have, uh, but it just wasn't there. Uh, I tried typing in the the actual URL for the uh, the product itself, and it bounced me back to uh, the the front store page, which was weird. It didn't even tell me that anything was wrong. So they tried the same thing on uh, Green Man Gaming, and uh, this the same thing happened. It showed me the DLC and uh, no other search results. So I typed in the exact product ID into the URL for Green Man Gaming, and it finally showed me the game, but there was no buy button. There was just a this game is not available in your country button, which made me oh, sad. interesting. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I've not <laughs> heard that anybody else having trouble. Hmm. But yeah, hopefully you cannot buy just... that game in Japan. Uh, so, Justin, uh, here's my question for you. Why didn't you try gifting him the game? Uh, I offered to share the game with him via the Steam sharing, but uh, something about cross-country sharing, he said it would not work. Oh, actually, sharing might have worked. Uh, okay. okay. There's a, uh, <laughs> Steam but, yeah, cross... I did think of that. There, there was a big... Uh, they just shut off. Cross-region yes, sharing. Steam allows publishers to disable cross-region gifting. So that's what I was thinking of. Ah, well, we, we did see. go through trials and tribulations to <laughs> attempt to get Gord to be able to play this game, but uh, the I think the only option that we didn't try, I guess, uh, was piracy. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> given, given the situation, uh, probably wouldn't have been the best choice. Um, hello. <laughs> okay, yeah. You give us permission to pirate your game so they can no. play it. Mm. <laughs> it's all right. I watched well, a uh, we tried a, a bit of a let's play. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, the rest of us played it. Um, I played it not for the first time. I guess I play. I have. Paul, Paul, have you played any of the other House of the Dead games? Uh, yes, I have, actually. Uh, I've played... Wait a second. They were in arcade at one point, right? Yes. Because, uh, yeah, then... All of them except for the fourth one, I think, were in the arcade. Right, so I think I, I've, I've played two two different ones in arcade. I don't remember much of it, but I was, you know, it, it's a standard arcade game did the fair. One you, did either of them have, a, ga- have, a, have like a pump shotgun as the controller? 
Uh, no, I believe what I, I think uh, the ones I played either had an Uzi or a handgun. Okay, because the first two were normal handguns, and the third one was like a pump shotgun. So I'm guessing you played probably the first two. The third one was yeah. a little after the time that we were done in arcades, I think. But I remember very much enjoying the House of the Dead too, which until Overkill came out was my favorite. Understandably. Um, for very different reasons than Overkill. Overkill is funny because it's funny. Uh, House of the Dead 2 is funny because it's bad. <laughs> but I also that played is... the original Typey of the Dead, and so when I saw that the Typey of the Dead Overkill, combining uh, the, typey of the, the original Typey of the Dead, which was a remake of the second game, and Overkill, which is uh, the, my favorite one, into a new package... I went and immediately purchased it that same day. It took me a couple of days longer to actually purchase it myself, but I knew I was going to get it. Right. So, I guess uh, Jonathan, why don't you why don't you tell us what you did on on this project? What was your what was your role? Well, okay. So, uh, presumably, everybody knows the history of the House of the Dead Overkill, which was made by. Uh, Headstrong. Is it Headstrong or Headfirst? I think it's Headstrong, isn't it? Uh, which is a UK studio uh, a couple of years ago. A uh, big hit on the on the Wii. Uh, then, then it was remade, then it was upgraded to uh, a PS3 version. And then it was sort of last year that Sega came to our studio, which at that time was Blitz Game Studios, and said, since... Since House of the Dead Overkill had been made on BlitzTech, which was the middleware technology that we made, uh, would we be interested in converting it to Typing of the Dead? Which we were. And I was assigned to the project as the lead designer and lead writer. And it was enormous amounts of fun. And <laughs> I suppose people would be also familiar with the the, the longer story of typing of the dead overkill in which uh, halfway through the project the studio collapsed and went bust and all the games were canned and that Sega came to the rescue because Sega have uh, a, stu- a development studio in the same town that we were based in and said hey look you guys can come in come into our studio and finish the game um, actually that was in- that was instigated by the the managers of, of our team, a guy called Ollie Clark, who, uh, you, if you've read about this story on Gamma Sutra, it kind of goes through all of that that story. So we were incredibly lucky to be able to finish the game, because mostly when a studio collapses, the games all vanish into the ether and are never, ever heard of. But very, very rarely will uh, you know the development team be able to sort of take the game on themselves and carry on finishing it because what normally happens is the dev team say, yeah, we'll finish the game for you. Honestly, we really want to do this. <laughs> and then everybody realises that they've got no IT support, they've got no proper salaries, they've got nobody running the company, everybody gets scared and everyone goes off and gets new jobs and the project collapses. So publishers are very, very scared to actually allow that kind of thing to happen. But because we were able to work at the, the local Sega studio and we it was a small team with a relatively small project 
on a small budget, they thought, well, we'll give it a shot. And within a couple, within like a, a week of setting up at that new studio, we'd shipped a milestone. We, we, I think we shipped an alpha build that week. And then when that, when, when they saw that, I think they realized that, yeah, we meant business. We were going to finish this project. And, and we did. And it was, it was fantastic fun to work on. So when you say you were lead writer, I guess the, the script for the game, the original version of the game, was, was not you. That was somebody, I guess it's Sega, or the original developer, right? Yeah, that was the guys at the original developer. Um, so all of that stuff, all the grindhouse stuff, all the cutscenes, the, the, the plot of the game, that was already in the game when we, when we got it. So that was nothing to do with us. So love it or hate it, and a lot of people really do love it. Uh, so credit to those mm. guys. So what I had to do was start putting together the actual. I a I had to take this game that was all about uh, as a light gun game and decide, figure out how we were going to convert that across to the typing mechanic, and how we were going to do it using the technology we had, and how are we going to implement all these systems under the under the hood to actually allow us to make the game really, really quickly without having to write specific lists of words for every zombie in the game. How are we going to you know, come up with a system of how many words we're going to write, how are we going to distribute them across the game, how are we going to have some zombies having specific words, others having just a specific pool, others having just a comp- tapping into a whole general bucket of words. <laughs> so I had to come up with all of, all of those systems and actually sit down and get my hands dirty and write and wrote, wrote thousands and thousands of lines um, there, was a, there was another design team as well called Jim who was, who was really good, he, he wrote a lot of stuff and between the two of us there's only like two designers, myself as design lead and Jim as uh, our other designer and we had to go through every level had to get our hands real dirty on every single zombie and say right is this zombie going to be in the typing version so if you play the light gun version, you can tackle this on really, really quickly, much, much quicker than you can do in the typing game. So you'll right. find that there's a lot more zombies hmm. in the in the, the light gun game than there are in the typing game. So we have to be we have to go through that by hand and say, "Are you in? Are you out?" Just to make the timing and the pace of the game really, really sweet. Because if you play the game, you you may or may not realise the whole game is actually about timing. Everything has to be perfectly timed for the length of words you've got to and how many zombies are on screen at a time. So we have to be very careful about the timing. So there's a lot of work on there, as well as actually writing all this absolute gibberish nonsense, <laughs> which was probably yeah. the most entertaining, but by far the most entertaining bit of the job, which is coming up with all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I definitely noticed uh, because I having played the original, like in the in the hospital level, for example, there are all those zombies on the roof of the other buildings when you're outside, and normally right. you can, they can't get to you, but you can shoot them for extra points. But I was I was trying to figure out in the seconds I had while I was facing them if there was a way for me to shoot at them, but I figured no, there's no way. There's there's nothing to type here. So I definitely yeah. noticed that part of the development. I don't think it hurt the game at all. So. You, no, you no. It, it just did feel a little bit weird, and I you uh, passed by uh, screens passed that, by where screen. there are tons of zombies, and I remember in the original you'd be able to shoot them, and here it's just like, oh, I guess this is kind of a cutscene yeah. now. 
Right, but it was fine because you know because yeah. like you were saying because of the the, the way the taste works out. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I guess uh, one of the ways you are the. One of the things we had to do to cope with that, that idea of the camera would just fly past all these zombies because we didn't have because all the all the cameras were controlled by animations so they were really really baked into the game mm. and we didn't have the resources or the code to actually go in and change that so we had to go with the cameras but we could put what we call snapshot kills on some of the zombies where we just assign a single character mm-hmm. to them so. That enabled you to have those quick glances at, at a zombie, and then get a get a, you know fire off a shot. But sometimes it was just too quick, and it just you know we we a lot of those sort of fly bites. We'd try right. at putting these snapshot triggers on them just to see if it was fun. But if if it wasn't that much fun, then we generally just took it out. Thought because if the player if we put a snapshot on a zombie, then the player would think, actually, I've got a right to be able to get those. And if it was just too hard, if the timing just didn't work, then we thought, well, we're not going to give the player a bad experience by giving them something that's pretty much impossible. Yeah, Just right, that's, focus that's on the areas that are, are more fun. That's an interesting, I guess, philosophy. Because in the original, there were... In the original Wii one, I, don't, I, don't, I guess it was probably in the PS3 one as well. I didn't play that. Um, but there were these golden brains you could shoot. And sometimes oh, yeah. they were on screen for like half a second. So if you didn't know they were going to be there, they were already gone. And getting all of them at a level was how you unlocked uh, the extras in the game. Right. So it's interesting that your, your design choice was actually the opposite of the way that they did, did that in the original. Yeah, um, to yeah. a degree. Because with those little golden statues, I know exactly the ones you mean. With those statues, if you played the levels over and over again, and with the game that's only a couple of hours long, it was very much designed to be played through multiple times. Right. So, like absolutely, yeah. So, if you played multiple times, you would be able to spot exactly where those characters were going to be. So, you'd have your cursor hovering over that bottom left of the screen for one, two, three, bang, and you'd be able to get that time and you'd know exactly where it was. Whereas with our game, because it's all procedural, and we decided to stick to that, that we even with a, a snapshot with these single characters, we'd still leave it with a bit of a random pool, rather than saying that that's always A, that's always Q. You know, it's, it's more entertaining when you've right, got... Right. When you're told to type a single character, you think, well, that's really easy, but then you say, type, press G now, and you go... Oh my god, I don't know where the G key is. <laughs> yeah, that's happened quite if a lot say, in the boss fights. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if I tell you to type grab, your hands can immediately find those characters. But if I say just press F, your brain just goes this horrible stall. Which, I mean, that's, that's one of the strengths of the game when you're asked to type something incredibly simple. That you, your brain panics. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Or, or when uh, you're playing on the hardest difficulty in multiplayer mode and you're both fumbling over each other's <laughs> letters trying yeah. to... Yeah. There's so you many times you realize where... That, uh, you realize that in the hardest difficulty, capitalization and punctuation count. Whoa. <laughs> and yeah. you're uh, stumbling over one another. It's a similar moment of panic in the other direction. I Every time I saw the word automatopoeia, I was like, you know, screw it, I might let Justin take this one because I'm not going to get that word. <laughs> Yeah, I had that, that, was, that was definitely me. I definitely added onomatopoeia. Nice. Yeah. Um, 
and Mississippi as well. I put Mississippi in, and I think, why the hell did I do that? Whenever I play, like, <laughs> you know, I'm, that's interesting. I feel like maybe maybe it's the the country difference, but at least around here, every single school child learns exactly how to spell Mississippi in, in, as, when they're super when they're super young, just as like, oh, this is a big word that I can learn how to spell. And it's also yeah. relevant because it's a thing in America. We've got that in uh, Canada as well, except we spell it M-I-S-S-A-U-G-A. <laughs> okay. So we are, I, I feel like we actually had no trouble with Mississippi because it's just everyone knows how to spell Mississippi. Yeah. But uh, yeah, internationally, yeah. I bet that that is, that is a tr- one that trips people up. You count in Mississippi's. That's true. Um. You already answered, I guess I was going to ask uh, a question that you already answered, and I think the answer, I guess, was uh, given the amount of time you had in development, but, and uh, how, many, how many different ways, I guess, you could touch the original code, because um, something that I noticed that was different from the original uh, typing of the dead, which I don't, I guess you probably must have played through it to do research for this game, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, was that all of the characters had these ridiculous typing contraptions around their neck, in the place of guns. <laughs> and I don't, and I, but uh, I, I noticed that they didn't have them in this game. And I'm, I, guess, uh, I guess the answer to that is just because of the way it was built. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, to, to, to a degree. Um, we basically just didn't. We were an incredibly small team. We didn't have... We had, well, we had one artist who could do... who was doing our graphics, who was doing all the... Uh, new uh, menu stuff right. and the actual uh, in you know, the sort of the in HUD artwork for the the splats and the, the boxes for for the, the for the kill words but yeah. we didn't have any 3d artists and mm. I, there was some, I, I, I question how well it would have worked to be honest because with that like that Dreamcast level graphics the guys are made out of boxes anyway so right. it, they look, they're really it's wooden engineering. they don't have a lot of animation to them. Indeed. This right. was a very hulky looking game. Um, the C Agent G um, uh, Isaac Washington with keyboards on them. I, would it have looked good? I, I don't know. It might have just been... Oh, I think I you know. would have had to reanimate every single cutscene. It, it could have, but it would have been a tremendous amount of work. More than... Yeah, I mean, a lot of these run times so you'd have just coded them on, but right. it, we'd have, we, just, we just didn't have the resources... Uh, right. I don't and, think it took uh, away from the experience maybe, at all. Given the response to the game, maybe in future, if you know, there was a further version, maybe we'd always actually try and get that back. But right. we just have to be so pragmatic about getting the game done at all. Are you guys still? Are you guys still behind the DLC, or is that a thing that Sega is doing by itself? Uh, actually, yeah, we did. I uh, I edited all the DLC uh, during the, that actual main development, and they sort of held it over for timed release. So okay. I, I, I can't claim that I wrote the uh, Shakespeare Dictionary, but I definitely edited that whole thing, <laughs> sat there with a copy That's of great. Shakespeare's, the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> and, I, and I went through Fortunately, I, you know, I am a big fan of Shakespeare, and I live quite near to where Shakespeare was born and, and where he worked. So there's a you know, there's the Royal Shakespeare Company sort of quarter of an hour down the road from where I live. So me and my wife have been very quite often to go and see the Shakespeare play. So I'm actually quite familiar with a lot of them. And 
So I basically went through all my favourite plays <laughs> and favourite bits. And it was a wonderful couple of days because I, you know, I really did death march this stuff out and just sitting there just piling through play after play after play and you'd look at you'd read the play and you'd look at you know, you'd look at the internet for best quote list and you'd look at other source material for best quotes and you'd just find it and you'd just go back to the play itself to find all the the other wonderful language that was in there and pull that all together so that that was a fantastic couple of days i really really enjoyed it and it's a huge amount of fun to play because the thing i did straight after i finished the shakespeare dictionary was i went and wrote the majority of the swearing dictionary okay. which there, there's you couldn't get two more different writing jobs back to back but <laughs> shakespeare's got a got a good amount of i guess double entendre that would fit in. a huge amount yeah. of double entendre yes <laughs> i mean you could you you can lay your head in my lap and we shall speak of country matters <laughs> yeah there's, uh, there's plenty of mucky stuff in there but it's not quite as overt as what we right. ended up with in the well, swearing was, I guess it was at the time but uh, oh yeah but rare, certainly bawdy yeah um, that's cool I didn't know that the I figured the DLC I guess I'm more familiar with uh, EA's DLC policies, so I'm not sure how you guys were doing, whether it was before the game came out, developed or developed afterwards. Um, so you guys, I guess you did it all before the actual game shipped? Um, it, I think it had... I, I was writing the DLC while when the game actually shipped. And because we had a little bit of a delay, we had a... a so it was a good, it was a you know a proper digital release, even with this sort of hectic uh, environment that we had. But because we were in a, a living, paid-for Sega studio, so we had a bit more uh, protection from from being dissolved, really. So nice. they, we shipped the game on Steam, and then we the the programmers carried on with the multiplayer version, which we'd done all the level edit and population for. But the code and you know, the game always, from fairly early on, worked with multiplayer. But it, did, you, it, it didn't work well enough. So they had to spend a lot of time getting the network right. code right. And right. to actually keep synchronization through all these different events. Because yeah. getting the basic game to, to sync across the internet was actually not too much trouble. Just to send, send a word index to the to remote machine. That was fairly easy, but then there was just so many different animation events and uh, different special cases that just right. killed the whole thing. So the programmers had a huge task trying to convert a game that was never designed to go on the internet to go on the internet in, you know, in real time. And I think they they did an amazing job because it was just yeah, it's actually really yeah, it works really well. It's really well. Um, uh, thank you, guys. I mean, I'll pass that. I hope, I hope the team hear this, and I'll pass the movie comments on. It's really brilliant to hear that it, you know people are enjoying it and it, it works well. I tell you, one of the best ways to play it is on hardcore mode, where every oh, failure yeah. counts. It is way better. Yeah, it's we, way harder. We've but done way it that way. We we tried our first ever multiplayer game, uh, hardcore, whatever the. Oh yeah, game. we screwed up a lot of words, not realizing what hardcore actually meant. Yeah, we were just like, oh, hardcore. Let's check that box too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because you can play hardcore on easy, medium, or hard as well, which right. and you can sort of build up the level of difficulty that you want. Because playing hardcore with an easy word set still means that if you make one mistake, it resets. Right. 
we uh yeah we we made it through that i guess that first level but uh i think we we had maybe oh. one point of health left each yeah maybe. we we were we were hurting real bad oh good work which is uh which is great because in the original i would i, I played through and like maybe took one hit on the level it was just, the original was fun but it was not difficult yeah um is the, can you play the can you play the light gun version of this game multiplayer? I I guess we only ever did the the typing version multiplayer. Well, there's got to be local multiplayer. At Is least there, I, don't, I don't even know. We only ever did typing, but uh, I know, like, yeah. it's cool that it includes the entire original game. Yeah, on the on the PC version, you can play it in. You can play it multi. You can play the the sort of the light gun game, but you, right. you multiplayer across the internet, but you use a mouse. Right, but we didn't have any local multiplayer because it was so basically geared around yeah, having two keyboards. Because two, right. two keyboards in a piece of fine, but because mm. the code only recognizes one keyboard input right. at a time, ah, and that cool. bit was so welded to assist to the sort of OS right. level stuff. Speaking of uh, speaking of OS level stuff and uh, the, the recognizing things, um, when I first installed the game, I had a really hard time getting to play. Because uh, my malware locker, oh right, uh, recognized it as a key logger and was yes. automatically <laughs> deleting the files from Steam before I could play it, and I was really confused. I was like, "Is this?" And then I was on I was on the Steam forums, and everybody was like, "Wow, this game's a lot of fun!" I'm like, is it just me? Is it? And I and I would try to confirm the files with Steam. It was at every time you're like, "One file is missing." Uh, we'll <laughs> re-download that for you. And as soon as it was re-downloaded, it was immediately flagged and deleted. <laughs> so it took me forever to realize that, like, I was, I, I, it was my, you know, it wasn't your guys at all. It was something that I had installed, but I was so confused. Um, yeah, we understandably. It was it was a bit of a surprise because I mean, we obviously we go through compact testing and all sorts yeah. of testing, to, and we did we did okay because of the, the the spec we chose, and it was a fairly non-demanding game, so most three D cards ran with it. We had one problem with one three D card that just wouldn't run the game at all. I thought, oh my god, what's going on here? And we discovered that it was this l- brand new three D card, and we thought, oh, no. how the hell did this not run the game? It it would eat it for breakfast. And we found it was just so new, it was using techniques that our game didn't support, so we had to update the game to actually cope with one of these one of the latest. Uh, ATI cards or something. I can't remember which one it was, but it was quite surprising. Yeah, and that keylogger thing, that was surprising. Yeah, I mean, because I, I guess it is a keylogger, technically. Uh, yeah, it logs are keys. Yeah, but it's not It's not trying to steal my passwords, I hope. Not- <laughs> <laughs> that could be for uh, the next DLC. Yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, just... everybody's password. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be next week on Gamma Citra. Uh, credit card yeah. breach due to <laughs> thousands of credit cards stolen. Uh, I desperately hope not. Otherwise, my career is finished. The best part is that uh, uh, you yourself type them in to kill zombies. Yep. Oh, sweet! Type it yeah, in my exactly. password now. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, what is your where, what is the town where you were born and what's your mother's maiden name? <laughs> you know, you you could probably pretty easily uh just dump in a bunch of word buckets based on that uh uh which service was that? Uh Snapchat, was it? 
No, it was like, uh, yeah, maybe it was Snapchat. It was like all of everyone's passwords uh, in plain text. Oh. Oh, yes. yeah, that was Snapchat, yeah. And like yeah. A, a searchable index. <laughs> People have been making yeah. uh, uh, crosswords with those. Uh, PlayStation Network. Uh, I, I bet it's happened more than once. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Plain text password. That's going to be uh, that's gonna be the next DLC. Next dictionary. <laughs> Is yeah, there I'll, a chance that uh, you could uh, possibly make your own dictionary for the game? I feel like that would be really difficult, right? Because of all the timings and making sure... Yeah. Yeah, we did, look at, we did look at that, but the, the problem is that people can just type really bad stuff in there okay. and then upload it, or, you know, take either just by shooting videos of it or uploading it, you know, so it just became a bit of a mind, a bit of a legal minefield, so we right. weren't able to support it, which was a shame because it would have been so much fun if we thought people were, were if it was going to be okay, then it would have been an amazing feature, but the first thing people are going to do is they're going to they're going to put really, really offensive, racist, nasty uh, IP right. user created content. User created content. Yeah, mm. yeah. But we believe, I guess we know secondhand uh, how difficult it is to compile a dictionary for a game of any sort. Um, because uh, some friends of ours released a game where they literally had to write their own dictionary from scratch and then write a joke for every single one of the <laughs> I remember that. So I guess that while your task wasn't as daunting, I can I can sort of imagine, given how long they spent on that, how, having to crunch writing the dictionary must have been quite. A, quite a yeah, because we 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 had it when we were writing for about three or four months. But you know, obviously, sometimes sometimes you're spending writing, and sometimes you're spending actually editing the levels, and sometimes you know, for me, I was designing bits of new bits of front-end, new menu flows, and just generally keeping the, you know, doing the design leadership on the game. It did take quite a long time to write all this stuff. But I found I wrote a lot when I wasn't even in front of my computer. I had my phone with me, and I'd hear a word or think of a phrase, and then I'd just be typing that into my phone just to just to remember it and I, I got lots and lots of content by just sort of logging things that I thought of or things that I saw right. things uh, things that people would say to me which is basically logging the universe for for weeks on end <laughs> and do you uh, do you still get those that that impulse to uh, grab your phone and write down a word yeah it's really bad and it's <laughs> something that one of the programmers said, said you, you, this game is going to ruin language for you I mean <laughs> Bear in mind that you know one of my hobbies is writing, and I love words, and I love writing, and just telling stories and all that. And then just to have that ruined because every time I think of a really interesting pithy phrase, I think, "Oh, I should have put that in the game." <laughs> but, <laughs> you can do a one point one patch, right? <laughs> um, maybe, maybe. Have, if if do we do, one, I'll let you know. Do you have one phrase that you feel was your favorite out of all of the ones that you came up with? Oh god! Um, or uh, if you can't think of one, just maybe like a couple that you were really proud of. I quite like. There, there's some. I don't know, I can't, I can't really think. There's 
so much I enjoyed it. I, I remember with the, the the swearing dictionary when I wrote that, I came <laughs> and my wife said, "What did you write today?" And I said, <laughs> "I wrote the phrase excellent dick shelf." <laughs> And she looked a bit upset. <laughs> <laughs> that um, was definitely one of my favorite things that I saw. Just the random swearing. Yeah, uh, it, it was, that was an, that was an interesting job because with, when you when you say it's ever since, oh, right, swearing that would be really easy, and then you think, yeah, wasn't it be easy? And then you think, actually, you think that the, that phrase might be a bit racist. This phrase might be a bit homophobic. This might be a bit rapey and all these things that you genuinely don't want to be offensive you don't want to go you don't want to be you don't want to be racist right. you don't want to be homophobic you don't want to be any of these really nasty unkind things so you have to be quite creative to come up with all this yeah. this swearing and nonsense and foul mouthed idiocy and, yeah. and also yeah. because you, you think of all the swears you know and you think that that's a lot of swears but then it's like Three, four. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, uh, it reminds me of that, there was an episode of The Simpsons where Homer was in the basement swearing. And Bart comes down, he's like, ah, oh, Dad, I heard you swearing in the basement. Let me help you out. Uh, crap. Boobs. Crap. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. And we, we were limited to do about 30 characters as well for a for a long phrase. So, that, I mean, it was, had to get very creative with swearing. But it was it was a good job. Yeah, it sounds like it was a lot of fun to work on. It was a lot so. of fun. Uh, I mean, I quite like some of the stuff we had in like the first boss fight, where it becomes actually the thoughts of the uh, the boss fight character, and where he says, "I suppose it's is it is it too late to shake hands, or, or is it, how about we play cards?" <laughs> oh, is that the boss? I was thinking that that was what your characters were thinking. Oh yeah, yeah. this is it. This is it. I mean, is that something that? Uh, Every player will have a different, uh, a different read on, I suppose, and that you know that that's one of the great things about it is that right. I, I read a great article where somebody described all the things as exquisite corpses, which I think is an old Dadaist thing about right. self-contained, right. meaningless phrases. And he said, that if these are the, if these are the zombies and they're coming towards you and they're saying, you may as well give up now. It'll which, you know, these are all the phrases, these are some of the phrases in the game, where I say, you, you may as well give up, it won't hurt, I'll just nibble a little bit. <laughs> and, you know, if this is what, you know, when he starts thinking, are these the zombies, are they giving me advice? What is it all about? And it's, it's, <laughs> it's wonderful that people have all these crazy interpretations of the game. Yeah. So I guess this is not the first game that you worked on. Uh I guess you've you've had at least one other that I know of, um, which was on iOS, right? Yes. Um, the, the rain the rain cloud game Kumo Lumo. Yes, yeah, that was yes the that was my the, the first original design that I actually uh, actually got of, of, that I got met, brought to market actually. So because up until that point I've, I've done a lot of work for higher you know all, all with uh, Blitz Games, which was a you know, brilliant place to work until. Till they went bust last year. So, yeah, Kumo well, so many studios. So yeah, many studios. real shame. And it was it was because there was a couple of there's quite a few other studios that we were very much aware of that were like us. And one by one, over the past 24 months, we'd seen them go down, and we thought, oh my god, they're like us. And first off, it's horrible because when you see a studio's closed down, you realise that 
there's another hundred people exactly like you and all your friends that have lost their jobs that day. So there's a tremendous mm. amount of sympathy you have for it. And also this feeling that, well, if they could go and we could be next and it turned out we were. But yeah, so to go back to to the to, the, to my other games then I guess it all started. I mean, the most one of the more interesting ones I've done was the very first Xbox game, which was Fusion Frenzy. Okay. Which huh. uh, I've got that uh, within arm's reach. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> uh, that Fusion Frenzy was the that was sort of the first game I worked on that actually got published. I, I worked on a few that got that vanished into the ether um, before that, but Fusion Frenzy was the first game that we did that got published, and that that was. Them, one of the most entertaining games I've ever made. Uh, you know, up until this day, I still have huge fond memories of it. It was just so much fun to make, and seeing people enjoying playing it, you're just really pleased <laughs> that you actually should, of, as much fun they had playing it. We had just as much fun making it. It was a tremendously creative and enjoyable experience. We're uh... and Fusion Friends was the very first Xbox game to go gold. We beat. Uh, Dead or Alive by about four hours, which nice. they, they, were, they were really annoyed about. But because uh, Fusion was published by Microsoft Game Studios, so we had a whole Microsoft Game Studios QA team thrashing out the last few bugs, desperately, desperately racing to beat the other Microsoft Game wow. Team that was uh, Dead or Alive. Yeah, it says that you net. guys were, were one of the first Xbox originals. Yeah, um, we, we, uh, I think the, the US original US printing has got XP001 on the spine. Yep. So, that, so guess, that's, a, that's a claim to fame. So that was your, if that was your first game, I guess you were... Because you, uh, Blitz also made Glover, right? Was yes, that... they were making that when I joined. and So I didn't actually work on that. But yeah, that, okay. was, that was a lovely game. I never played it because I did not own a video game console at the time, but I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, this looks adorable. It's like a little glove dude. <laughs> my uh, uh, my wife was very happy to see that Fusion Frenzy was one of the games in the collection of Xbox games that we're borrowing from a friend here in Japan. and Because uh, oh, it's uh, a game she's got fond memories of. And we had uh, a our Scottish friend over, and uh, she started picking out accents. <laughs> oh, this person's from... Uh, and Liverpool, this person's from... Liverpool, yes, is it? Yeah, one of the guys who's <laughs> got a Liverpool accent. Mm. Yeah, the top tip for Fusion Frenzy is if you're playing Twisted System, which is the game where you jump and duck on that spiral corkscrew, mm-hmm. if you put that into practice mode, you get an infinite time limit. So it becomes a full-on last man standing game, How long, however long you can last. Mm-hmm. Because in the main game, you've got like a 45-second time limit, no matter if there's all four of you still there, so you can have a, a draw. But in practice mode, it just goes on forever, faster and faster and faster, <laughs> which is by far the best way to play that game. I'm definitely going to be passing that tip along. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and so um, one of the other games I did... Which was you know very very different to some of the other games I've done. It was uh, we did, we did Bad Boys Two. That was that was that was a tough tough development actually. But a lot of people seem to really like it. Um, I'm probably not 
I, I, I think we all knew we could do a better job on it if we'd had more time because that was a very swift development. But I think a lot of people really liked that game. I, I don't look without massively fondly myself. I have to confess. Uh, I did a lot of I did a lot of casual games. I did a lot of like uh, karaoke games. Yeah, I'm looking at the looking at the Blitz Games catalog. There are a lot of karaoke revolution games. Yeah, so I did all those. That was quite that was quite interesting. Looks right like you guys there. did uh, you did Nickelodeon's games for a while too. It looks like. Yeah, we did a lot of Nickelodeon games. We was, uh, uh, THQ. We had a very good relationship with THQ. They gave us a lot of work. They would always come back and give them place more work with us. So, you know, that was a really successful relationship for the studio. Man, THQ, um, another casualty. Another casualty yeah. last year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at so, least you know, most, the, of their, the, most of their IP is going to live on, at least. Which is, yeah. I guess, a, a consolation. Um, so, would you say, I guess, is, uh, is, is Fusion Frenzy, I guess, your, the your favorite thing that you've worked on overall? Uh, Kumo Numo almost certainly was, was my favorite, uh, probably followed by Fusion Frenzy, which was huge fun. Uh, another game that is probably less well-regarded but was an enormously enjoyable, satisfying game to make was U-Star 2, which is the uh, movie karaoke game that we did on Connect. Okay. Because uh, the company U-Star existed before... And they, they came to us with this idea that of inserting people into movies and getting them to act out the lines. And we said, yeah, we'll do the game. And then we had, you know, so we had, to, we had to sort of completely reinvent the game on Kinect, which had a far lower resolution camera than the U-Star guys had originally used for their first tech demo. And it was yeah. an extraordinary experience because... You know, the Connect the wasn't finished at that point, so right. none of us, including Microsoft, knew what its full capabilities were going to be. So we were just we would, and there was no game like this, nothing at all yeah. like it. So I we knew had nothing to about really, this game. I knew nothing about this game until you started talking about it. But from what I'm seeing, it looks like a fantastic concept. <laughs> it's a brilliant concept. Um, and I'm not, it, it didn't actually do brilliantly uh, in the long in the long term financially because everyone said this this looks amazing, but perhaps didn't really want to play it. <laughs> so it was a bit of a shame there. But it was a huge fun game to make because we were trying to invent a whole new type of uh, interaction. Because up until that point, you touched your game controller to actually make it do things, and suddenly we were given. The connect and told you know, how do you do a game that's almost entirely based on front end decisions mm. without actually touching it. So we had to invent all sorts of uh, interaction methods and learn huge amounts about that and make a whole new game based on this acting mechanic that none of no no one had any experience with, no, none of us had done before. And so we were really out on a on a limb trying to invent this whole new game and. It was enormous fun, and the team really, really got into it, and really was, it was a really dedicated team. And we knew we were making something that could be a massive success or just vanish without a trace. But we just really lived it and just had a great time working on it. 
You know, I bet that, because uh, you were saying the Kinect camera was not sort of up to the task, I guess. I bet that uh, if you, if this, if you got, if this concept were to get revisited in 10 years, maybe, this could be a really, really cool thing on the level that maybe you weren't, you said, I guess if you weren't able to pull off exactly what you were looking for. Because this does, I, I, I think that this has potential just reading about it. And this, the selection of scenes that are here, because the Wikipedia article has all of the scenes that you could choose from. Like, there are yeah. good scenes here, like Blazing Saddles or The Godfather, uh, I don't know, Star Trek, Terminator, 300. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right that with the, uh, the, yeah, with the, the technology, I, mean, I think it was, the game was definitely ahead of its time. Um. I think that with better technology, it could be, you know, a, a really, really much more successful, successful game. You know, it'd be interesting to see if, in a few years, that something else, if they did go back to it, or if, uh, somebody else tried it. You know, where I bet this would do really well is at Disney. Uh, yeah, yeah. They have, they have, because I know that uh, they they had maybe. 15 years ago when the last time I was there. Uh, this, like, arcade place that's not a park. It's in the Disney complex where they had virtual reality stuff 15 years ago and I was, like, I was just blown away. And they had games that were entire sets where you would run around. Uh, my favorite was they had just had the entire front of a pirate ship and the screen was a complete 180 around you. Uh, the back was the door. And you played it with, I don't know, as many, up to, up to eight people. And there were just other pirate ships filled with skeletons around, and you had to run around the deck of the ship, pulling the fuses on cannons and repositioning them to fire at the different ships. So I feel like this thing has precedent for putting people in movie scenes as a game. And I, I bet that this sort of thing would do really well in a Disney setting, uh, especially with their movie catalog. Yeah, I mean, with the thing is, with those big, like, uh, theme parks, right? they'd actually be able to do it properly because they'd be able to have a high-definition video camera and a green screen. Right. I'm, but I feel like that's, that's sort of the setting where this could flourish long-term. Like, not just one... I don't want to, you know, yeah. That'd be really cool. I might have Paul, you work for Disney, right? You you know who to uh, talk to. <laughs> no, that's that's not that's not my expertise there. I, I work on other stuff. Alright. Well, you should you should ask around and find out who to talk to uh, and see maybe if they can get these get these people some work. So, uh, <laughs> I'll I'll try to bring talk. it up next time I'm down there. Um so, I guess if you're saying you're saying that this that your iOS game was your favorite, do you want to talk about that development at all? Do you have anything we we like to hear about game development and how the yeah, inside that, of the industry works? That was a very very interesting development because we had this opportunity to actually do an iOS game that was basically put together by our team manager who said that you've made a deal with 
So the studio says, listen, leave us alone for six weeks. We'll make you an iOS game. <laughs> Don't ask questions. Just <laughs> trust us. And keep it under your hat. So we had, like, some of the studio heads weren't allowed to get involved with the game. And so we actually just went ahead and did it. And I remember going in, because it was only like five of us on the team, and I went in one morning when we were going to actually come up with a des- design or choose what game we were going to make. So I went in and I had three game ideas, and I thought, well, the other guys will all have a bunch of game ideas as well, so we'll see what comes out. We'll probably come up with something brand new. And on the way into work, I was, I just thought, I just came up with the idea of, oh, look, we'll just, I want to do something about nature and something about growing trees and saving a planet and raining and stuff. And I, and I just came up with the idea of spinning the world and moving the cloud around. So I spec that out in about four minutes, took it into the meeting and came out and about an hour later and we decided to make the game. <laughs> and I just think, I thought, it can't be that easy. It can't be that easy. Surely there's going to be something that's going to go wrong. But it stuck. And we made the game. And we made it in six weeks. And it was really good, but there was problems with it. But we took it to uh, a couple of publishers. We showed it to Chilingo. And they said, we really like it, but we think there's some problems with it. Because at that time, it didn't have 36 levels. It had one level. It was more like an infinite runner. It was still the same game, but it had an infinite runner structure. And you'd play the game for two minutes, and then you'd inevitably die. And then you'd be told how far you'd got and how many things you'd grown and try and beat your own score, that kind of thing. And eventually okay. you'd unlock more and more stuff into the game. But they were, they were, we knew that didn't quite work. But we did, Obviously, in six weeks, you didn't have time to really make a game respond to what was wrong with it and make it again. But when they said, well, we really like it, here, have... So the studio said, okay, we'll do spend another 12 weeks on it. So actually do it full justice. And that's when we did all the different levels and we added a lot more different characters and different mechanics into it. And you know, that, that was amazing. So because we were very much an adventurous team. We, we, weren't, we weren't the team that just really enjoyed doing the same old games. We were the team that really enjoyed doing something completely different and completely crazy. So we had just a perfect personnel. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if there's a big rain up genre, but we did it. We did it. I'm very, very proud of the game, and I'm hoping to spend... You know, I'd, I'd love to actually do more with that type of game. Um, it's, it's free on iOS right now, right? So you can link out to it in the show notes. Yes, uh, it is. It is free. Um, it's, on, it's only on iOS at the moment. It's not on Android. Sorry. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, at the moment, because of the Blitz situation, it's not on sale. But all I can say is sort of keep an eye open <laughs> for reasons I can't go into okay. at this point. All right. But so, hopefully, uh, well, we, de- we, we certainly believe that um, it can have a future, but we're just sort of trying to do a few things. And the, 
all things point to good for Kumo Lumo. So, so to keep this one under your hat. <laughs> all right. Well, and, and everybody else who's, who listens to this podcast before anything might happen, uh, also don't tell anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we 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 have no idea what's going to happen with it in the future, but we'd hope to give it a chance. Positive, positive thoughts. Positive thoughts, everyone. Positive thoughts. Um, so, given given the wide variety of games that you've worked on across multiple genres, like I was saying, do you have do you have a sort of design philosophy or, or something that you like to bring or keep consistent across all the different titles that you've worked at? Um, I think at the moment I, I've, I've very much turned into more of a sort of a mobile developer. I just really enjoy the way mobile games work. I enjoy that play pattern. I think mobile games really fit with how I love to make games because you can be very creative. You can be very. You can be a bit surreal. You can be. You know, you can you can bring crazy influences. You can do a game based on street art or pop art or all sorts of crazy artistic backgrounds you can do you can write um from all sorts of different perspectives and you don't have to worry about if it's going to fit with the mainstream audience that you always used to have to do for a traditional console game you can actually be very creative that's why i really like console uh that's why i really like mobile games just for that vibrant creativity you can bring I guess your initial investment is is lower in terms of funding, so you don't need to try and pull in a huge audience. You can do something that's more for people who enjoy the same sorts of things. Yeah, and most importantly, you don't have to convince hundreds of people who work in a very very conservative business environment to give you twenty million dollars. You know, you have to find because yeah, you know, to make a really good mobile game, you're talking a hundred thousand or fifty thousand or ten thousand, however much you want to spend. You can scale your idea to the amount of money you've got. So you can actually be creative and take risks. And if you present it to people in an interesting way, then you can actually absolutely have success with something that's really unusual that people have never seen before. Yeah, well, especially. I guess with the, the sort of collapse over the past year of so many mid-level developers, you're either going to only be making small or indie titles, or you're going to be making those AAA mass market. I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't say block summer blockbuster, but that's sort of the equivalent. So yeah, that's very true. I mean, we call, we call it the squeezed middle, which is where. The, the, the super blockbusters, your Call of Duties, etc., are successful, right. and then the A, the A and B games have just vanished. But there's loads of small indie games have moved in to fill that void. So, would you would you say that now is a better time to be a game developer than it was? I guess when you started, was it late late nineties, early two thousands? Oh, absolutely, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, definitely, definitely, because the barrier to entry has dropped so massively, because you've got markets out there that you can get into with mobile, with PC distribution, digital distribution. Digital distribution is a huge boon, because a person on their own can bring their product 
to the entire planet if it's good enough, if it captures the imagination, if they get the right PR. Whereas with physical distribution, you couldn't do that without a colossal amount of logistical overheads. We've heard that so firsthand. Just have a great our, idea. Our just from, uh, yeah, I guess from a few weeks ago, it was just did just that, uh, where it was just him and his buddy, and they were able to get their game greenlit, even though they really hadn't ever. They had been going to game jams, but they didn't have a company. They didn't have the same sort of studio. But because of the digital distribution model, they were, they were able to get their game on Steam and hopefully uh, in making making some money back from that. So. Yeah, I think you mentioned Surgeon Simulator. I think that was a game jam game originally, or just some foolish idea, some demo that the guy had put together, and then his studio really liked it. And yeah, and I love he's partnering with Valve. So, wow! I guess yeah, anything, so, yeah, anything is possible. Yeah, and also the the, the technology is very very accessible now. You've got the uh, you've got Unity, you've got mm-hmm. Construct, you've got Marmalade, you've got all sorts of engines that allow you to get your idea actually working. Look at look at Minecraft. Minecraft with its you know, five hundred billion dollars that's brought in. <laughs> so mm. Minecraft is ridiculous. <sighs> All right, I think we're running up towards time, though. So, uh, I don't know. Do, do, you have, do you have any parting words that you would like to leave our, our listeners with? Oh, I, know, I just want to say thanks, and I hope you, uh, I hope you enjoy Typing of the Dead. And uh, we, enjoy we the super exquisite experiences. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully Gord will be able to enjoy it soon, just as Paul and I have, have been. Yes. <laughs> um, We'll have to continue to work with him, but yeah, thank you, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and providing us with uh, your insights into game development and your your stories of what it's like to work there. Uh, no problem. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. You, thank you. Do you have a website? Do you have a website that people can visit if they're interested in uh, reading more about what you do? Uh, yes, I do have my website. It's called jogosity.com. Cool. Uh, and if, and do, you have a, do you have any other things that you want to promote? Do you, have, do you have like a Twitter you want to tell people about? We generally let you know, our guests talk about Yeah, uh, I, my Twitter handle is also jogosity. That's J-O-G-O-S-I-T-Y. Um, right. We'll put it in the show notes. So people too. can check in. I, I, I'll be talking about video games and dinner and general foolish thoughts as indeed everyone on Twitter is <laughs> and uh, I've got I've got it's probably quite a good time to keep an eye on uh, on both of those feeds because I've got quite a lot of interesting things in the pipeline which uh, I'm not announcing yet but <laughs> w- will be going public in the next couple of weeks so uh, yeah keep an eye on it absolutely we can, uh, keep, yeah, we can watch that and redirect our our Twitter to that when that happens. I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, Gordon, Gordon, Paul, uh, if people wanted to get into contact with us, how would they do that? Twitter at Red Pages Podcast. All right. 
or uh, find us on our uh, website, redpagespodcast.com. Uh, our new website, our totally not a placeholder anymore website. <laughs> uh, I, almost, I, almost all of the links work now, almost all of them, which is a huge yes. improvement. Um, I, I feel bad about the current state of the website. Um, so. It's okay. It's a thousand times better than what we had before. So, you know, Aw, thanks. People, I, I hate to tell you, but <laughs> almost... Almost nothing but plain text was not the highest end of websites. Well, the background was blue. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, for our Red Pages podcast. But, you know, whatever. Alright. And if you wanted to get into contact with us via email, uh, you can't, because we still have not been able to get access uh, to our email, because Google has shut it down. But keep trying, but keep tweeting at us us what you think our password is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if you if the, the person who successfully guesses the password on that account will win a Red Pages podcast T-shirt. So um, uh, that is a T-shirt that is going to be white, and I will have drawn a picture of a book on it with Red Pages. But I will show that's a unique competition and a unique prize. Good luck, everyone. <laughs> uh, um, we're we're going to try and get that fixed this week. That, uh, now that everybody's back from their holidays, so. Um, I've I've been Justin. I've been Gord. And I continue to be Paul. And I was Jonathan. Alright, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, before you uh, leave, I do have one final question that I completely forgot about until now. Oh, yeah? Uh, what, ha- nice what happened to the Gorgasm? <laughs> oh, it is in there. I wasn't gonna... it, it is in there. Um, it's actually slightly easier to to do with typing because you your yes. combo gets reset every time you take damage. Right. Uh, it's like think... uh, oh, you, you, oh, every time you take damage, or if you get four character or a couple of characters wrong. Right. Right. I think. Wait, Paul, are you asking about the, the American the, the, flag? The American flag uh, and uh, that stuff, because that was my favorite part of the Gorgasm, and not seeing it made me very, uh, I don't know, not unhappy, but uh, just sort of disappointed oh, that yeah, the, the extra flag. effort. I don't think that was in the European version, and that's the version we ported. So you know what? Mm-hmm. That would totally make sense. Yeah. Totally yeah, because... In the in the original that we I had on the Wii that Paul and I played through before the Typing of the Dead came out, um, when you get a Gorgasm, he goes Gorgasm. Your entire score, like the the bullets that show how many hits you've gotten in a row or whatever, it's entirely replaced with a huge American flag. <laughs> Just because you know USA shooting guns. Yeah. But, uh, you know what? I that. That not being in the European version totally makes sense. So that's yeah. what happened. It fell into the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> <laughs>